Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I am Drew. Booyah. Hello, Drew. Welcome. Drew, the stew, what you gonna do? When I come for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm riffing, guys. I'm riffing. This is this is me ad-libbing, just going from the hip. And, you know, I'm just a stone-cold killer. When I go from the hip, I'm gonna get you straight yeah. up. It's just a a buckshot of who knows what, but at least one of those pellets is gonna hit the wall. It's it's just exactly. I just I just murdered you with words. Yeah, it's possible somebody out there is amused, or maybe a a few of them might have already tuned out. I I think it's more likely that they just found that entire exchange cringeworthy, and they're just if they're dying, it's only on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, see that i have self-awareness that's got to be worth something it's worth more than what a lot of people have oh thanks that's uh i take that as a pretty high compliment (laughs) yeah lots of people don't have that self-awareness man a lot of people don't have anything i want (laughs) (laughs) well said Maybe that says more about me, or maybe that just says more about what I think of people. Whatever. <laughs> I think it's the latter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all so know what you think about people, and it's not very much. <laughs> uh, if the uh, if the majority of humanity was dangling off a cliff, and they reached out a hand in order for me to pull them up off that ledge, there's a good chance that I'd extend a foot that would just give them that extra nudge off the cliff. <laughs> you would you would step on the you would step on the hand that's still clinging to the edge. I would step on their collective unified hand. <laughs> but anyways, um, humanity eh, it's overrated. <laughs> I mean, there's certainly a lot of good in humanity. But it's definitely an uphill battle for them to prove their worth to me. If you were writing an Amazon review for humanity as a whole, you'd give, what, one star? Two stars? Uh, I would give it... I would see if I could give it whatever the lowest star allotment was possible, and then I would go to Yelp to give it an additional negative lowered review and continue my rant there so that collectively between amazon and yelp people would see could do the math and do a cumulative uh uh formula to get just how low i rank the species i'm pretty sure at this point dogs rank more (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah i can't blame you for that dogs are amazing (laughs) what were you gonna say I was just going to say, it's a good thing we have this podcast. Otherwise, I feel like you need a blog pretty badly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, let me put it this way. This kind of incendiary language might be troublesome to most people because it might indicate that I was part of some sort of hate group. But I hate people so much that there's no chance that I'm part of a hate group. Yeah. I'm just a hate individual. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) 
And and you're not hating people based on their ethnicity, sexuality, oh, yeah. religious beliefs. Yeah, you're just hating them on the fact that. that they're human beings. Yeah, I just hate them because they exist. What's exactly. wrong with that? <laughs> there's there's nothing prejudiced about that. Yeah, exactly. What can you possibly say to that? <laughs> um. Yeah, so this week we're going to continue on with our reading of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin, Volume 6. Um, but before we do that, uh, something big happened in comics this week, and we we, her- we here at Between the Gutters felt that it was only appropriate and necessary that we have some words. Uh, we lost a industry legend today, someone who's art and work we've talked about a little bit on this podcast in the past and someone who we've got quite a bit of respect for um maybe we didn't always like everything that he did but overall we 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 always had respect for him and we felt that his contribution was definitely you know he he his his being in comics was definitely more was definitely made comics better than, you know, his absence from comics ever would have, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, we lost someone who who contributed greatly to comics. And uh, the person that passed was Tim Sale. We've, we've mentioned him in the past on works as The Long Halloween and um, with Batman as well as... Uh, Haunted Night and, you know, Dark Victory. Those are probably his most well-known works. They're not necessarily the works that I would point to but uh, when, when I want to highlight his art, but they're still beautiful uh, works nonetheless. Drew, did you uh, want... Did you have any words? Uh, only to say that Tim Sale is definitely an artist that left a pretty big mark on me. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, like a lot of kids, our generation grew up reading comics and then kind of fell away for a while. But when I did come back to comics, probably when I was in late high school or maybe early college, so I'm talking like either late 90s or early 2000s, some of the comics that I picked up were his Batman comics and his art was the thing that immediately jumped out because his art absolutely lent this air of gravitas to to the story that you know and and we've we talked about the long halloween in one of our episodes a few months ago and neither of us are fans of jeff Loeb's writing but i think tim sale definitely made the writing feel like it was better than it actually was mm-hmm. uh and I, I don't think that those are my favorite Tim Sale comics. One of the things that I would point to in terms of, you know, a good, a great representation or a good primer for his work is his issue of Solo, which was a DC series from, uh, I want to say like 2004, 2005, that era. But it was essentially a, a, a series where each issue was a showcase for a specific artist and Tim Sale did the first issue of that. So it's just 48 pages of him 
doing his own thing. Um, he was able to, yeah, just play in the DC universe and tell his own stories and experiment a little bit with his artwork. It's, yeah, it's just his work on the purest possible form, I think. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that that's something to to seek out if if you want to find uh, more Tim Sale stuff. Yeah, I definitely, you know, for for a guy who's been in comics for quite a while now, like it's his uh his not being here will definitely be felt because he was the kind of artist whose work I always looked at and I always wanted to see more of it. I always wish that he had worked with other people um that i you know that he just never got a chance to work with you know and mm-hmm. i i guess that's for me personally that's that's the greatest not regret but you know that's the that's the thing well is that a regret i guess it's a, uh mm-hmm. it's 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 yeah it's the thing that's uh you know I, I the man will be missed but it's it's just the missed opportunities of of things that we could have seen from him and uh you know again he's just such a talented artist that it's we're you know we're we're worse off without him yeah definitely an unexpected shock to hear of his passing i actually have do have a, a brief story uh about him uh like one of the few interactions that i did have with him uh and like it wasn't anything big but i remember maybe one of the first or earliest cons that i ever went to and i don't remember exactly which one it was i i remember bringing a copy of the long halloween with me my my copy of the long halloween and i went to go line up and i don't think he had a huge line or anything at the time uh when i went to see him so I took that opportunity to go up to him and I asked for his autograph and he was uh he was pretty pretty glad to sign it and I forget if he offered or if I asked but I think I asked I I asked him if he would draw a sketch of Robin in in the uh, in the back cover of The Long Halloween and he was like yeah sure he didn't make like a big thing of it he didn't charge me he he just drew like a quick sketch of robin in my copy of the long halloween and i was like thanks and uh you know and i walked off but that all was something that i remembered because it was a really cool thing to do and a lot of artists don't wouldn't do that you know yeah totally totally yeah Yeah. i never had the chance to meet him or anything but based on everything i've heard from him and all the tributes uh that people are posting online yeah definitely sounded like a great kind generous person you know yeah yeah um yeah we another interaction we had was uh, a couple of years ago uh at seattle comic con uh i was able to stop by and i actually did a very brief interview with him for the podcast and it it was just not something that we ever put up uh you know for one reason or another uh maybe i was a a little embarrassed by the quality of it or i uh, just not confident in it but uh 
yeah, we'll we'll try to post it up on our Instagram so you know you guys can give a listen to him and you know see what he has to say and you know we can all kind of you know pay tribute and just remember him. Mhm. Yeah. Mhm. All right. You want to move on with Gundam the Origin? Yeah. So today we are continuing our read through of Mobile Suit Gundam the Origin. This episode we are on volume 6 which is titled To War. The Origin is by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko and translated by Melissa Tanaka. One thing I wanted to talk to you briefly, Albert, uh, before we dive into examining the contents of the story, but I just wanted to touch base on how, well, based on our episode last week where we talked about shonen manga and the things, the observations and and things that we came out with uh, arising from that exercise, how do you think Gundam The Origin fares in comparison to the four books that we discussed last week? Um, I think if I had to use one, or not use one word, but if I had to compare it to the other uh, manga that we read last week, I'd say the thing about it is, well, one, the first of all, the, the art is superior to any of those like by miles if i had to be perfectly honest Mm -hmm. uh it's just more like put together it's just better looking like i i wish i had better words to describe it but it It just looks better (laughs) it just looks like it's you know superiorly crafted in terms of its uh line work in terms of its style i I would say it's not as flashy as as those other uh it's not trying to be as flashy as those other uh manga but Mm -hmm. in not being flashy that's probably where its strength lies and uh in terms of the writing i think i think it's actually pretty similar to say that it's not something that's overly dramatic or grandiose or anything either it's it's just the right amount of uh severity and drama that that sells it you know i don't like if i had to pick one manga out of all of those that might come closest in comparison just due to the premise, it would probably be Attack on Titan. Because um, mm. it's just kind of a big story about war and about, you know, survival of, you know, your 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 group, your 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 species or whatever, you know. And uh I guess those two things might be the ones that have the most in common. Uh certainly out of those the four that we read, uh, but I still felt like the origin just treated it more seriously. It it didn't feel. Here's what Attack on Titan felt. Attack on Titan felt like 
this might be kind of a slap in the face of anyone who likes Attack on Titan, but... That's okay. Uh, You've never hesitated to slap anyone else in the face. That's true. That's true. And, you know, for good measure, I often give an extra spit. But, uh... <laughs> but I was gonna say, Attack on Titan feels like it's... It almost feels like it's an angsty teenager's idea of what war uh, looks like. Mm. <laughs> you know, That's an just, interesting point. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. But I, once you said it, I, I totally see it. Yeah, it's it's just very, like, it takes the tropes of, of war and just puts it on this very, like, melodramatic level, right? And just makes it, yeah, it's 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 kind of surface level in its depiction of, of this drama, whereas I do feel like maybe Gundam The Origin uh, was able to do it better because The Origin had the anime come first so it was able to refine itself in when they remade it for the the manga you know uh the manga i forget but uh help me clarify this but the manga came out years after the anime did right and it was just a reinterpretation slash retelling of that original the the original subject material so uh and it was retold by one of the originators of the original anime, right? So mm-hmm. I'm sure he had a whole lot of time, years, to, you know, think on that work, reassess it, reevaluate it, and to uh, perfect it. So, you know, I, that isn't to say that he spent every day thinking about it, but, you know, after all those years when the opportunity came to him to redo it, he, I'm sure there were things that, in hindsight, where he was like, well, if I had to do it all over again, I might have spent a little more time on this or that, or I might have elaborated on this or that, things like that, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so to be fair, Gundam The Origin pro- probably benefits from that that extra time. So, you know. So Attack on Titans fans, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what about you drew uh not too much i guess i was also thinking about some of the shonen parallels between this and you know a typical shonen battle manga because uh not this specific volume but the overall story of mobile suit gundam the fact that it's the we follow our protagonist amuro who is you know, a, a young boy or, you know, a teenage boy who gets into this situation where he has to ferociously uh, defend his friends. And it's almost like, you know, a kind of a similar coming of age type of story that's common in in the shonen manga. And I was also thinking about how when we first began our read through of the series, I think early on, maybe when we were on like volume two or three, you mentioned how uh, it kind of felt like there was a repetition to the the rhythm of the story where it was like they were almost fighting like a new lieutenant or a new enemy general every week, you know, or every every chapter there's, you know, somebody new to fight, just a constant, constant cycle of, yeah. of uh, battles. 
so yeah i think those kind of elements made me think of of the shonen stuff that we talked about last week i see of course this this is uh much better in my opinion yeah for most of all the reasons that you mentioned i do have a question about that then so uh i know we might not have gotten too deep into it but Mm -hmm. so the stuff that we discussed last week was specifically shonen manga what this this would fall into that category of manga for young young adult men i'm assuming like or well according to uh wikipedia it's a shonen oh okay it was was, this is yeah this was published in gundam ace so you know it, it was a magazine specifically for gundam fans right uh but uh based on what i'm looking at on wikipedia gundam ace is also shonen you know targeted at that boy audience okay although reading this it it kind of feels like this is more mature than some of those others you know like certainly you have stuff like chainsaw man where people are getting (laughs) sawed into pieces and stuff yeah but and his entire motivation for being a superhero is to touch boobs and yeah, eat udon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from from that standpoint, something like Chainsaw Man has has kind of more quote unquote mature material. But you know, from a an adult's perspective, that's not what makes Chainsaw Man mature. In fact, yeah. I actually think that's what makes Chainsaw Man a little juvenile. Yeah, yeah. No, whereas I absolutely agree. Yeah, whereas something like Gundam, even though I think we've only seen boobs once this whole time so far, and did nobody's... We? Oh, no, you're right, we did. Okay, I yeah. remember. Yeah. yeah, and then, uh, you know, there's obviously death, but it never feels like there's... It never feels like Yaz is showing us any kind of gratuitous violence or, or gore. But I think because it's handled in in a more mature way, it that's what makes it feel more mature. Yeah, yeah. It's like, almost like they actually he actually respects his reader. You know, like Gundam: The Origin is telling the story of the of the first Gundam from 1979. So I, yeah. I imagine when he was putting it together in his mind, he probably thought a lot of the people who are interested in reading this are probably people who grew up watching the anime so they're adults now there's no reason to to really talk down to them you know like yeah he made a comic for you know adults but even younger people i think could still appreciate and enjoy this yeah yeah like i was gonna mention even you know not to keep going back to it but like even that one scene that we were talking about where we do see a naked woman and there's like boobs right mm-hmm. so in any other manga that would be played for cheesecake or you know for fan service or whatever right but even the way that they put it in gundam the origin it it kind of reminds me of that first scene in alien uh where you get sigourney weaver and you know, even though it's a naked woman, like maybe a more juvenile person would be like, right? But, but there's 
there is a reason for the nudity, you know, like there's it's it's there's a subtext to it, right? And mm-hmm. I would even say that because from what I remember, it was a uh, was it Casilla or something like that? Yeah, Casilla. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't meant to like fetishize her or make her this object of lust as much as it was just to. I don't even really know how to describe the scene. Like, it was, like, her coming out of the shower, but she was, like, so intimidating, even in this state, you know? Yeah. Like, I think you could look at that, and there's an argument to be said that there's... They're using the nudity for something, as opposed to, uh, you know, just base animal lust. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, how, uh, as a work, this is something that came out years later, and the audience grew up with, uh, you know, this was something made for an audience that grew up, you know, that was made for the kids that grew up into adults. Uh, It reminds me of, I was watching this uh, YouTube video about Samurai Jack, Mm -hmm. and the thing about that was, that was a cartoon where... Uh, I th- I think they made a bunch of the episodes, but they never finished the series. And then years later, Cartoon Network decided to put out a final season for it. I, I wanted to say that this was like maybe one or two years ago, maybe even three. And I remember watching this YouTube video, and they were talking about that, and they were saying that Gendy Tetrazovsky, or I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but the guy that created Samurai Jack, the thing about it is... He made the final series in a way where he understood that the audience that watched it were no longer kids. They were probably adults or young adults at this point. So he made the content stuff that would uh, be in line with that. So that's that's pretty interesting that you made that observation about uh, Gundam The Origin. Yeah. It's kind of it's cool that he was able to do that. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying that it was only for the old fans, because I think uh, in one of the earlier volumes they they did there was some extra material in the back that talked about the genesis of it, and part of it was because uh, the people at Sunrise wanted to uh, you know reach out to a, a new audience or possibly even attract uh, an American audience. So they 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 certainly kept those considerations in mind as well. So I I, I would probably say that the work overall strikes the perfect balance between being something for older fans as well yeah, as something yeah. that younger fans can can enjoy. Because there, yeah, I mean there there's certainly like mature themes in the story, and occasionally there's there's a bad word or. Occasionally, you'll see a, a naked breast. People will die, or you know, yeah. things like that. Yeah. So it it might not be appropriate for a little child or anything, but yeah. As far as like, you know, the target teenage audience, I think it, I think it does hit all the appropriate uh, notes. You know. Yeah. Granted, I, I'm not a teenage boy anymore, so I could yeah. be off in to or in terms of what kids today are in tune with, but. I I feel like if you if you put this in front of kids, in front of the type of kids that are into 
you know, Demon Slayer or an Attack on Titan and, and reading those popular manga, I, like, it, I feel like this could possibly grab their attention just as well as those other ones. That's an interesting exercise that you propose because, <laughs> again, to go back to just my lack of faith in humanity, there's a part of me that feels like no matter what, they probably wouldn't enjoy it, but... That's I'd be curious true. to see. I'd be curious right. to see if they could at least follow what was going on. Like if you it know was what? something You're probably right. Enough. You're probably right, man. <laughs> Sometimes I forget myself and I get overly optimistic at the state of the world. Yeah. That's why I'm glad I have you in my life, man, because you remind me how things really be. Yeah. I am an anchor around your around your neck and you are swimming in an ocean. Yeah, an ocean of despair. Yeah. So, you know, that's good. <laughs> uh, uh. Anyway, shall we dive into the events of the of the book? Yeah, sure. So when we last left off, uh, the last volume was a flashback volume where we talked about uh char and just what happened to it, it was a volume that discussed what happened in his youth as well as uh what happened to the zabi empire and how they rose into power um zabi empire right uh I, I guess i wouldn't call him the zabi empire yeah, yeah it's the zabi family and, and yeah. they ended up taking over uh zeon yeah yeah so these these books are kind of hard for me to read sometimes because there's just a lot of names and details that I have to memorize and I'm terrible at that. But you know, bear with me. So yeah, so the Zeon Empire and uh, the Principality of Zeon. The, the Principality of Zeon, exactly. So uh, it it was quite a revelatory volume of uh, Condemn the Origin that last one, and we we picked up with. Or we ended with Shar going off into the military and having killed. Well, we discovered that Shar isn't really Shar, but he's uh, what's what's his, his real name? name? Is Casval Rem Daikun. Yeah, and he assumed the role of this young man by the name of Shar, uh, so that he could essentially. Based on the context, you know, he could uh, uh, essentially work his way back into Zeon and get revenge on those that wronged him and his family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have cool. any general impressions you want to share before we look at each of the chapters in Volume 6? Uh... I mean, it's, it's, a, it's another good volume that continues the 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 trend of just giving more backstory and information of what's going on so it was a pretty fascinating volume pretty engaging volume uh so i'll that's all i'll say without giving away too much uh before we go into the uh volume by volume breakdown mm -hmm. the chapter you? breakdown yeah no that that works for me man so uh I'll get straight to it. I'll I'll share the chapter summaries and you know we'll provide commentary. So again, for whatever reason, 
in Gundam The Origin, the chapters are titled sections. So uh, I might use those terms interchangeably, uh, just depending on my mood or if I just want to, you know, throw Albert off and confuse him. (laughs) (laughs) Where am I? Where? What's happening? I don't understand. I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) All right. Section one. We begin volume six in the year UC 0074. Shar and Garma are in military training school. And while Garma excels in the academic portions of their training, it's obvious that Shar is the superstar of their cohort. Garma, being a Zabi, is treated like somebody special by his peers. He's got lackeys. Shar comes off as the guy sitting in the back who's always got the answers to everything. Whether they're studying mathematical equations, playing basketball, or at the shooting range, Shar just seems to outdo Garma. Garma's older brother, Dozel, is the dean of the military academy, and he's keeping an eye on both of their accomplishments while still maintaining his mobile suit development project. Giran Zabi, the eldest of the Zabi siblings, decides to pay a visit to Dozel to check on the progress of the mobile suit development. He is disappointed with what he finds and wants to cancel the project until the lead engineer, T.Y. Minovsky, makes a convincing presentation. Minovsky explains that with the advent of Minovsky particles, which jam radar and interfere with integrated circuits and guided precision weapons, the future of warfare will be changed forever. This is where the usefulness of mobile suits will come into play. All he needs is a little time to make the fusion reactors smaller. Giren is pleased with his news and has Dozel continue on. Back at the academy, the students go on a 50-kilometer survival hike as a training exercise. Partway through the trek, the instructors make it rain in the colony. Shar is setting the pace, and Garma is struggling to keep up. At one point, Garma stubbornly decides to press on in the rain. Even though they're hiking on a mountainous area, he slips and hurts his leg, but Shar finds him, gives him some first aid, and stays with him until help arrives. Afterward... Garma decides he likes Shar's forthrightness and decides to be his roommate in the dorms. So this is one of those chapters where there isn't really a battle scene or any any real fighting or action. It kind of feels like a lot of the chapters tend to have at least one little scene uh, centered around action, but this was all story and, and character building. Did you have any thoughts, Albert? Um, I had a few, or I guess my main thought, it might be a hot take. Uh, yeah, um, so I think the one thing that struck out to me, and I don't even know if I believe it, but it, it was just something I contemplated as I was reading it, right? Wait, can I guess what it is? Were you shocked? That Shar could dunk the basketball? <laughs> no. No. Why oh, would okay. I be why would I be shocked by that? Although okay. Okay. although now that you mention it, it might have something to do with what I'm about to say. Uh-huh. Um 
I don't know. Shard is an interesting character. I'm not saying that I hate him. I don't. Uh, like, I can definitely see why people, uh, I guess, idolize him or put him on this pedestal or whatever, or or just really like him, right? Yeah. So the thing about him is that, that struck out to me is when looking at the way that they wrote him, there's a part of me that was wondering whether there's anyone out there who looks at him and goes, this guy's such a Mary Sue of a character, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because he's just good at everything. Yeah, like, so again, uh, if, if you're not uh, too familiar with the term Mary Sue, uh, a lot of people use that derisively towards uh, fictional characters, essentially saying that these are characters that the writer just made so overpowered that it's unbelievable that they would exist in the real world, that they're just so perfect at everything that they do. Um, a lot of the times people use it as a way to put down like female or minority characters because they, you know, for whatever reasons, maybe due to their own insecurities or just, you know, things that they hate seeing in the world or whatever. Um, Whatever the reason may be, but a lot of the times it just feels like uh, the 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 complaint about something like that is I hate I hated watching that movie because they just made her so powerful and it didn't feel like she earned it. It's so unbelievable that she could do all this stuff, right? Like Ray in the Star Wars sequel trilogy. Yeah, Ray is one that I think of, or Captain Marvel in uh, in the MCU is another one that came to mind. Um, like, there's there's just a whole bunch of them that you can kind of point to if you really stopped and just dissected popular culture, right? Sure. But there was a part of me that was looking at it, and again, granted, this is something that's come out a while ago, uh, and the source material goes back even before that, but there... There is something about Char that is just, he's just unbelievably talented at everything and things just work out his way. Uh, even in this volume, there are just things that he does where it's like, oh, wow, that's, the people responded to him in a way where in real life, I, I don't know if that's how real people would respond, but I, I will say this, I, I I still found him compelling enough of a character that I wouldn't say that my thought of him was as a Mary Sue, but it did just cross my mind to ask whether whether it'd be fair to apply that to him. Like, if someone wanted to make the argument that he was, would they be wrong in, in saying that? Because there's, there's scenes from the last volume where, as a kid, even as a kid, he's just this really sharp kid mm -hmm. that adults, they're they're kind of afraid of because they know that Behind his seemingly innocent exterior, beneath the surface, there's something dangerous and menacing there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So that was that was my main thought about him as I read, well, this section as well as this volume of uh, Condemn the Origin. Yeah, and I think that's a fair assessment. I think... One could certainly state that Shar would come off as more believable or perhaps realistic if he weren't so dang good at every single thing he did. 
Yeah. But there's also, I don't know, I guess I'm forgiving of that just because it <clears throat> kind of feels like the way that he's being built up, uh, because we've already seen the previous volumes before the flashback, you know, he's he's not completely infallible. Like, he's not, he's not uh, successful immediately at everything he does. I mean, he... He failed to to capture or destroy White Base and the Gundam and Amuro. Maybe ha- Amuro hasn't beaten him, but he hasn't beaten Amuro either. And they've fought a couple of times already. So yeah. it, it it kind of feels like there's a that this is really just building up Shar as uh, someone who's extremely competent at at what he does. Yeah, not necessarily perfect but he's i think i think the physical feats are are not quite as significant to me as his mental cunning yeah i feel like that's the thing that makes him uh you know menacing like you were saying that you yeah. know that the reason why adults find him menacing or dangerous or or scary is because of his mind and his personality, not because he can dunk a basketball. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) I just want to see like adults flee in terror as they see this kid, like just dunking baskets. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it would be like if, if you or I played against the top, you know, high schooler that was going to play at a, high college uh basketball program if he was about to dunk on us we'd probably just run out of the way um that would be two adults fleeing in terror man well i'm pretty prideful so there's a chance i'd pepper spray that kid (laughs) (laughs) all right all right now Uh, now i want to see you play street ball with with teenagers (laughs) on my scale of like you know Actions to reactions, um, you know, me uh, severely harming someone is perfectly in line with the protection of my pride. <laughs> uh, the kid just ran up on me. I just had, there was this, just this sudden mist of pepper spray. <laughs> oh, man. Mama. There goes that man. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, Char is a pretty interesting character. I, like, I guess I'll put it all up here because we'll, we'll keep talking about him as the series goes on. But, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, he, he fascinates me as a character because he's... I, I didn't really know too much about him until we started reading this uh, this manga. And one of the things that you brought to my attention was that as a character, he's someone who's pretty surprisingly beloved. He's kind of the blow-up character out of this series, you know? Yeah. And I almost wish he hadn't told me that before I read it or or at the start of it so that I could have approached this, approached the character with a blank slate. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, what happened happened. So, my bad. Uh, 
No, 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 no. Uh, but I can't help but look at this character with that context now. And there's a part of me... One of the things that you were saying was that... I, I guess the thing that's funny about it is he's... he's I don't know if he's necessarily a villain, but he's certainly an antagonist for White Fleet and for Amuro. White Base? Or White... Oh, yeah, White Base and Amuro. And... Yeah. And, you know, traditionally, the villains are supposed to be menacing in order for you to have, uh, you know, someone challenging for the hero to... Worthy of the hero to to uh, have conflict with. But... I feel like this is one of those cases where they did such a good job of making that character so quote unquote cool that he developed a fandom of his own, you know? And there there are certainly examples of this, like Joker and the Harley Quinn are are other examples that I can think of of similar situations where, you know, mm-hmm. you have these characters who for all intents and purposes under any other circumstances would be monsters you know they're not yeah. people that you should look up to but for because whatever they're fictional reason, they're fan favorites yeah but for yeah but for whatever reason um they develop a a pretty massive following on their own and in the worst case it's it's usually just the worst kind of fans that love the worst things about them you know completely the, com- the point <laughs> yeah the the comparison that i would want to point to and this is something that i've heard other uh, Gundam fans or critics point out is that the popularity of Shar in Japan is probably comparable to how Darth Vader was the most popular Star Wars character. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. And there's something kind of fitting about it because I know that uh, Yasuhiko has admitted Shar's helmet design was inspired by Darth Vader. <laughs> That's kind of cool. That's yeah. pretty cool, actually. If you yeah. look at it in silhouette, you can definitely see the similarities. Yeah. 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 Yeah, just the shape of it. Yeah, but it's interesting to think about just how beloved this character is. And reading the past two volumes, uh, at least the first, the last volume and the first half or the first maybe two-thirds of this volume, it really does feel like you don't see that much of Amuro. You don't really see much of anything of White Fleet. It really does become the... White Base. Uh, oh, White Base, sorry. <laughs> uh, it really does feel like it's the Shar and uh, the Zeon show here. And, you know, it's. Uh, I don't think the intent of it was necessarily, oh, yeah, I'm going to like boost this character as much as it was you know, to uh, provide context for whatever their background is and who they are and why they do what they do when they do what they do. Um, but, but yeah, like, uh, I, the unintended consequence was just, again, just, uh, this, this guy blowing up in terms of, uh, just how much people love him and uh, reading these volumes, I could see how that was a thing, how, th- how that became a cultural phenomena, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I bet there's a chance that some of the Shar-centered material in the manga could be a result of Yasuhiko giving fans what he thinks they want 
which is more Char material. Uh-huh. There's also a chance that he just simply likes the character himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I could definitely believe that. One of the interesting points uh, that I just thought of is because you just mentioned how like so much of the flashback is centered around Char and the zombies. Yeah. Uh, in the previous volume, we got a lot of Sela as well. That's but, true. Um, she's not really in this one other than like a brief scene. Yeah. The thing that I think about is how at the beginning of volume five, the previous volume, which begins the flashback, the first few pages of that volume start with the aftermath of the battle at Jabro. So, you know, it's it's the present day scene and then the crew gets some new uh, recruits and then somebody, one of the new people says something to Sela that, you know, triggers something in her mind because he says something like, oh, you, you look like you've got a man on your mind. And this is right after she realized that her brother is still alive and mm-hmm. operating as a Xeon ace. Mm-hmm. So she goes back into her, her quarters and, and like lies down on her bed. And then like that, that kind of frames the the flashback, right? So I, I thought it was interesting how when using that as the as like the genesis of the flashback, it made sense to see that the beginning, like most of the previous volume, you could say, yeah, there was a lot of Char, but it was it almost felt like it was also from Sela's point of view, you know, like almost like we get a bunch of uh, her own uh, reminiscing of her own. Uh, remembrance of the past and what she experienced but there's also a lot of stuff about the zombies as well and then when we get to this uh volume like she's barely in it and it's mostly about char uh the zombies and a little bit of amuro and his people at the very end of the book so to me it's interesting to to frame a flashback sequence like that where you start off with Sela and have it uh you know kind of look like it's from her perspective but then like once we get deep enough into the flashback it's almost like the framework kind of doesn't matter because it's not from her point of view anymore because like how is if it were from her point of view like how would we be privy to all the stuff that is happening politically or with with Xeon or the Zabies or Anaheim Electronics and and all of that other stuff that she would have no idea because she was a kid not experiencing right. those things so that, that that's future vision true to me. yeah future vision <laughs> <laughs> yeah she was uh, that whole time that she was in the bed she was seeing the future and the future of people that she hadn't even met yet <laughs> <laughs> she's got that kind of future vision <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I guess so maybe that's that, maybe that's what a new type is <laughs> uh yeah what did you think about the uh, stuff with Minovsky talking about the mobile suits? This is like total mecha nerd stuff right here, but I, I ate it up. Yeah, it's... I thought they did a good job of... I don't know how to say this without sounding dumb, but they, they did a good job of making it sound science Convincing science fiction, I guess, is, is yeah. the way that I would put it. So... Uh, maybe this wasn't quite up my alley because I don't really, uh, 
I think in terms of my expectation for science fiction, I don't necessarily need the science to be super detailed for me. Mm-hmm. So if I had to be perfectly honest, my eyes did gloss over a little bit while I was reading it. It could have been because I was tired or it could have been, uh, you know, just not my kind of thing. But I, either way, I got the general idea that this technology was the thing that would escalate mobile suits to the next level. Um, I think maybe where I get my science fiction, uh, you know, appreciation comes from things like Star Trek, where they always give that one really big uh, sciencey explanation, and then they they give you like a a really simple dumbed down comparison so that you get what so that you can kind of understand what they're trying to do and mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that's that's how i i do my my science fiction uh mm-hmm. you know it's it reminds me of this episode of futurama where you know uh fry and the crew they end up meeting the old star trek cast and something happens and one of them explains this big sciencey thing and then after this long explanation, he just goes, "It'll be like a rubber band, and it'll slingshot us past this thing, and we'll we'll be safe. That's how we're gonna get away." And I was like, "Okay, that's all I needed." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's I I can definitely see how for like really big mecha fans, uh, that's that's the kind of detail that just makes it super real and super believable just just adds to the experience of uh a mecha manga you know yeah yeah and it maybe uh you didn't notice in the previous volumes but there there were times of that i can recall when white base was entering battle and there were lines of dialogue that referred to Minovsky particles and stuff like that. Uh, so it, it is kind of like one of the things in the Gundam in the universal century of Gundam that, that uh, essentially explains why there is a need for mobile suits mm. because uh, these Minovsky particles, you know, it's, it's, it's this fake thing that they made up to give a reason as to why, people need to fight with mobile suits in their yeah. world. You know, it's, it's Minovsky particles are to Gundam, what tachyons are to Star Trek. Yeah. Or I can see that, yeah. you know, or, or like the mass effect fields in mass effect. Yeah. You know, it's, it's this, it's this one game changing element mm-hmm. that propels their technology forward. And yeah. Yeah. It essentially makes it, uh, it makes it so that everyone now has to take part of this. Otherwise, you're just going to be left behind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So with with Minovsky particles being used in warfare, now you, these capital ships in space, they're, they're not able to hit each other from long range with guided weapons because the particles jamming is too much to overcome, you know? And that's why uh, these mobile suits are high speed and they can get into uh you know these tight knit quarters or closer close in on bigger targets and 
shoot them down with basically like giant versions of conventional weapons. Yeah. I mean, it still doesn't necessarily explain why they have to be humanoid mobile suits. Like, why can't they yeah. just use like fighter ships and jets? Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh, I don't know. It, it's still it's still something cool to me. A fighter jet doesn't have a giant mechanical arm that can flick a human being miles and miles away <laughs> exactly. with, just a, with just a flick of their wrist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I want to see that happen. <laughs> you want to see a mobile suit pick up and throw a human? It just reminds me of a... Uh, I remember we were watching Iron-Blooded Orphans, and there's this one oh, yeah. episode where <laughs> the guy is... I forget what he was doing. I think he might have been standing in, like, the palm of his own mobile suit because he was making, like, some sort of grandiose speech or something. Yeah. And then, you know, this this guy was, like, flexing hard, trying to make a huge point, and he was, like, you know doing that villain thing where he was like, I'm going to crush you guys, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the main character in uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans, you know, spoilers, he doesn't even wait for this guy to finish his speech. He just rushes him and just, like, smacks the the hand of this giant mecha. And you don't even see what happens to the dude. You just see, like, a little speck in the distance. Yeah. Even just describing it makes you laugh. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, I can just imagine the glee that you felt when you just saw a human being <laughs> turn into a puddle of blood. Like that. It's the thing is, if it was like Looney Tunes cartoon, like a Looney Tunes cartoon, it'd be something that I could laugh at. But the the thing that makes it hard to reconcile it is that. Aren't blooded orphans plays it serious, so it's not like, you know, the guy's jaw drops and his eyes pop out and he's like, or whatever, right? <laughs> like, you're just supposed to take it on face value that this dude was just smacked and he's just a stain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a stain in the snow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, why am I laughing at this? <laughs> Did you have any thoughts on the? end of the chapter when they go on that hike and Shar has that moment with Garma when Garma gets hurt. It's, it's a scene where I think if I had read this volume before I had read any of the other volumes, I could look at it and be like, Oh man, these, this is a bonding moment between these two characters. They're, they're setting (laughs) themselves up. They're going to, you know, they're, they're brothers in arms. They're going to, develop this friendship and they're gonna uh you know they're gonna be partners with each other thick and thin or whatever right but then <laughs> i think knowing what we know about how that ultimately ends up uh you can't you can't look at it without knowing what what char's uh motivations are would like the entire outline of the thing isn't clear at this point in time but you do know that garma because of his connections with his family is an important person to know and you Mm -hmm. you do know that char with his motivations which is to get back at garma uh not garma but to get back at uh The the zombies you know that he's gonna he's gonna take steps and one of the things that he's doing here is He's going to befriend this guy as a means of getting 
into the upper echelons of powers. And he's going to use that as a means of putting the most hurt on these people, you know? Like playing the long game. Yeah. You don't hurt someone by being their enemy. If you really want to hurt someone, you make them love you before you hurt them. That is profound. Yeah. And also, I'm a little worried to be your friend now. (laughs) (laughs) It's just an observation. Take with it what you will. (laughs) I will definitely be keeping an eye on you. Yeah. You you just need to learn to strike at their heart. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Moving on to section two. Garma, Shar, and their classmates are engaged in a war game exercise with the Federation, and they successfully win while Dozel observes. Later on, the Federation officers who were present at the exercise speak to the third-year cadet's performance in the mock battle. The lead Federation officer goes into a speech about how the cadets will play a role in the peace, security, and prosperity in the Federation and the colonies. In front of everyone assembled, Shar asks a question to the officer, questioning what they are to protect, what foes they are to fight, and what actions are they to take in the event of a conflict between the Federation and the colonies. The officer doesn't take kindly to Shar's insubordinate line of questioning, and under the pretense of calling his sunglasses non-regulation, slaps him hard enough in the face so that his glasses fall off. Shar is uncowed. Sure enough, the rest of the cadets begin to grumble at the Federation officer's uncouth slap and say that Shar wasn't breaking any regs as he has an eye condition. They begin to vocally demand that the officer pick up Shar's glasses for him, and Garma stands up for Shar as well. The other Federation officers have nothing to say in his defense, so the guy is forced to pick them up. We then cut to a scene with Sela. She has just returned to Texas Colony while on break from school, and Roger Asnable picks her up in a horse and buggy. They have a conversation, and Roger says that his son is essentially the same as dead. Later on, Sela visits the grave markers for her mother, her brother, and her cat. It's comforting for her to talk to her mother there, but she also has a feeling that Casval is still alive somewhere out there. Speaking of Casval, we then cut to a scene where he puts a blanket over his roommate Garma, who fell asleep at his desk while studying late into the night. We soon learn that Garma has graduated at the top of the class, with Shar coming in second. Garma finds Shar back in their room, and Shar is studying a monitor. He, th- he says that a meteoroid is heading towards their colony and will hit them, but Garma isn't worried because the monitoring station hasn't issued any warnings. Garma also wonders whether Shar was insubordinate to the Federation officer so that Garma could be number one, but Shar just laughs at that suggestion. During the graduation ceremony, while Dozel is giving a speech, we see that the Federation monitoring station has finally realized the meteoroid is, an, is on a collision course with the colony. It's telling that the man in charge is more worried about being fired from his job than the casualties and damage that will be caused by the collision. The chapter ends with the meteoroid striking the colony. Yeah, I think I'm pretty conflicted again uh, about this 
section because, again, it was a thing where I do think it was done well enough where all of the things that unfolded and unraveled made sense uh, on on the surface, and I, I was behind it. You know, I was behind the idea that Char would... Okay, so I was behind the idea that... Oh, where do I begin? Uh, okay, okay. So I think initially I... I I looked at that scene where Char spoke up to the Admiral or whatever this guy was. I don't know what his official title was, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a scene where it, it almost feels like a Reddit story or something, right? Where, <laughs> where the guy is like, and I stood up to him, and I made this statement, and everybody was on my side. And then when it was all over, they all clapped, and he handed me my glasses back, and he was ashamed of what he had done, you know? It was... <laughs> It's just it's it's kind of this self self indulgent like almost masturbatory like sense of uh like how good he was it, at, at this situation right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and almost unbelievable to the to the degree that in real life I, I'm pretty sure if anyone spoke up in in that sort of a situation uh, under uh, under in in the military uh they would crush you under their heel. <laughs> you know yeah yeah (laughs) yeah but but secondly it also kind of feels like if you had some kind of eye condition and you had to wear glasses even sunglasses because of the eye condition like why would they accept you into the forces like that exactly because you know how like real air force pilots you you have to have good vision you know like you can't can't need glasses or anything so yeah they're not gonna be like you get to be in the second you get to be in the second or third tier of pilots. You're you're the guys that we use when we just need to fly ships out and take bullets. Yeah. You know, we we want the enemy to waste their bullets on you guys so our good pilots can go in and mop up. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. You're going to fly just slow enough so that they can uh, uh waste all their ammo. You. You. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to fly slow enough and low enough. <laughs> But they did build in some things that softened that blow a little bit. So one, uh, Garma does speak up for him. And if you do believe that this admiral or this whatever, this general guy was enough of a coward. And and I do think that this tracks along with the theme of the book, which was that uh, so far, which is that, uh, you know, the people in leadership in government or military or whatever often are more incompetent and more cowardly than we imagine them to be, right? Mm-hmm. So the the idea that this guy would be as lily-livered as he is, that he would be afraid of Garma because, oh, this kid's from an important family. I'm I'm going to, like... You know, I'm going to debase myself so much that I'm going to pick up this dude's glasses and put it on his face for speaking up to me or whatever. Yeah. Like, if the the point is to drive home just how incompetent and weak these uh, this the, this military leadership is, then that point is driven home. And that's consistent, you know. Mm. So I guess that element of it does make it believable. And then there's that extra added section towards the end of it where, uh, you know, again, like if this was a real situation, one, I don't know if 
anyone would really have the balls to speak up and, you know, just the audacity to question, <laughs> like, uh, a commanding officer when you're not in a question and answer situation. Yeah. Like, that takes, that takes quite a bit of balls, you know? Yeah. It's, Do you think it makes a difference at all because this guy was a Federation officer, not a Xeon officer? Yeah, I, I, I think that also tracks with just their idea of what the problem with the Federation is, right? Is that mm -hmm. they're just bloated bureaucrats at this point that don't really offer much of anything. So, you know, the, the second that uh, Garma steps up to him and he feels the pressure from the just the masses around him, what does he do? He, he, he bows to these kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you do that, who respects you? Pretty like humiliating. One, yeah, one, you, by losing your cool, they already don't respect you. But in that situation, going backwards on it is is just a death sentence, you know? Yeah. So, so, yeah, so to, to imagine that someone would uh, uh, go out there and say anything was initially hard to believe but when they establish towards the back end of the section that oh he 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 just gamed it out char just gamed it out to such a degree that he knew that if i spoke up i would get demoted points and you would be made the head of the class and i would be in a prime position to use you as uh you know a, a prop in my uh in my plan to get back at your family like that's pretty machiavellian it's quite machiavellian it it does make me you know to go back to what i was saying earlier it does make me consider though like a lot of things had to go right for that to work out <laughs> but yeah but it's still i mean the the writer's still thought it out enough where it was like okay you know what i it's not unbelievable to me but i can't mm -hmm. help but stop and think about it as i'm reading it you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah that was my general thought how about you i think you summed it up I, I i agree with you on those points i think when i first read it uh i yeah i think i was just taken aback that uh, it all pretty much happened the way that Shar likely plotted it, you know? Yeah. Cause, yeah. Cause, uh, even though when Garma makes that point that Shar did that on purpose to purposely get second rank in the class, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I can see the point of view where it would be questionable to, for Shar to to know for certain that that's the outcome that would have happened, like right, <laughs> how does he know that that wouldn't just get him completely booted out, yeah, entirely, or you know, some other consequence? Yeah, how did he know that Garma was gonna speak up for him? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, like all of it. I guess the Garma speaking up for him, I could kind of see that because that's more likely to happen. Yeah, than, at at yeah. this point, they've been roommates for a while. We know that yeah. there's been some passage of time, and there's a, a good chance, you know, off panel, 
I, I can easily believe that Char has been. <laughs> I was about to say grooming Garma, but that sounds weird. <laughs> but well, like, but that's what he's doing. I mean, not in a. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Some could argue maybe in a sexual way, but. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. So I guess he's he's been grooming Garma or yeah, manipulating yeah. him. Yeah. And Char just comes off as that cunning person who who knows how to take advantage of somebody else's personality flaws or narcissism, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that probably works in his favor when it comes to manipulating Garma. Yeah. It um yeah. I mean, speaking of which, and uh, you know, not not that I have anything to say about, you know, people's predilections whatever they may be. There <laughs> You told me uh, you know, outside of the manga that there's a lot of context surrounding people who, who kind of ship Garma and Shar. Yeah. And there were a lot of scenes in this manga where it was like, I don't know if he's just winking or nodding at the audience, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, again, like, hey, if, if that's what people are into, that's what people are into. Whatever, right? But Yeah, like that's, that's, there's that scene in this chapter when... Garma falls asleep at his desk while he's studying, and and then Char, yeah, puts a little blanket over him. It's like so tender, but like yeah. why why is that scene in here? Yeah, <laughs> or even in the last section where, uh, Garma you know shows up and surprises him by going, "I'm your roommate now," and he's just in like a towel, just hot, yeah, out yeah, of the shower. Another shower scene. I was just like, "What's happening here? <laughs> what, what 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 is this?" <laughs> like are they is this a thing or is this not i I, i'm so confused (laughs) Uh, maybe it's queer bait yeah well i mean it's uh it's quite baity then (laughs) yeah yeah it's pretty baity yeah it's one of those things where i think even if you didn't know about the fandom I think it's even funnier if you don't know about the fandom, actually. Yeah, yeah. If you didn't know about it, it would just be, like, perplexing. (laughs) Yeah. Because if you hadn't told me and I had read this, I would have just been like, what's going on with these guys? You would have wondered, are they, do they really have a romantic relationship or something? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like, I, it would have caused me to reevaluate everything. I would have just been like, I don't, if, if he's just using this guy to get back at his family why is he so like why does he keep giving him these come hither looks <laughs> <laughs> right yeah like is that part of the act i don't i don't understand he's really dedicated to revenge yeah. man <laughs> he's really he's willing to take one for his <laughs> to take yeah. one for his plot <laughs> yeah that is commitment. <laughs> yeah. All right. Shall we move on? Or did you Let's... have anything to say about the thing at the end with the meteorite, meteoroid striking the colony? Uh... I think the, the only thing that I really had to say, it, it, it's, you know, the obvious point, but it just shows the neglect of the Federation. Like, this yeah. is definitely on them. Like, somebody... Yeah. wasn't paying attention and then as soon as the people who work at the station find out they're not worried about the damage they're like oh shoot we're gonna get fired yeah yeah absolutely it just, it just shows you how little they actually care about people yeah 
it's it's that it's that thing where you know if people are concerned about writing villains that have uh compelling motivations right it's it's this idea that okay we're gonna not necessarily we're gonna add some layers of complexity to this situation as opposed to uh the principality is bad and the federation is good or whatever like they we want to interject this element of their dynamic which makes it obvious that they were there were grievances that existed before this war and some mm -hmm. could even argue or look at these grievances as uh valid you know yeah and yeah, it's 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 that thing where and like I don't want to keep taking uh uh you know just uh, works of fiction and just tying them to just modern day uh just things that are happening in the world, but it's hard not to look at it and make parallels to just what happens what's happening in the real world or in history overall right yeah and i think that's totally fair because a lot of great fiction reflects reality you know yeah yeah like you know uh i'm pretty sure that a lot of history is based on the rise and fall of empires right so we mm -hmm. we often you know history as much as we like to think that people have an ability to progress and improve history has proven itself to be cyclical in its nature and often the more things change the more they stay the same mm -hmm. and the point being or the 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 connection that i'm making being that you know the principality of zion is just this fringe uh they they exist on the fringes of space but they they just have this grievance towards the federation because they feel like all we ever do is send them resources and they're supposed to be the government that takes care of us but they're just such bloated elites that mm -hmm. they don't take care of us so why do we give them our resources when you know the people that sit in their ivory towers do nothing for us and yeah. and this is a prime example like like you said they could have easily detected this comet and they could have taken steps to save lives but they didn't and mm -hmm. when it did happen their attitude was more towards their own uh their job own livelihood security. and their yeah. job security than it was the concern for the people that died so on some level you could look at that and you could totally see why people would be upset with the people that are in charge mm -hmm. and 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 it's like you said like this was something that was completely the federation's fault yeah so you can point to this one incident as an example of a thing that was completely avoidable but this one incident is just also a perfect example of how if they had just done their job right then we they wouldn't have this sense of this brewing sense of frustration from the populace as a whole right mm -hmm. so they mm -hmm. could have they could have very easily just avoided the whole thing just by doing their job, but you had you know, one job. <laughs> exactly. But they 
again, it's this sense that they just sit in their ivory towers and they're just so removed from the people that they govern that they're almost like ants to them or something where, oh, if something goes wrong and some lives are lost, well, that's a thing that happened uh, all the all this all these thousands of light years away. That's not really my problem. Like we can just chalk it up to an oopsie daisy or something. And yeah, yeah. So on some level, it's a question of are these are is the principality of Zabi really that wrong in wanting to rise up? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that totally. Yeah, and and again, it's just something that. It was just fuel that the Federation just gave them. There was there was nothing there was nothing there that Shar or the Principality or anyone did to help that happen. Like it, it was just totally them. Yeah, exactly. It's an incident, a tragedy that serves as this inciting moment to kind of galvanize the populace of Zeon to, yeah. uh, you know, turn against their Federation yeah. governors or, or authorities. And that's true to history. Like, I feel like you can look at a whole bunch of different examples of this, but that's, I do feel like that's a thing that happens, you know, where just because the people are angry doesn't always mean that it's, some sort of plot or a conspiracy like these feelings come from real things these feelings come from real places mm-hmm. yeah and it's a reaction caused that that yeah. arose out of an actual event that you know cost a lot of lives and did a yeah. lot of damage and it's also pretty unfortunate that sometimes there are people who take advantage of these things to use it for their own purposes even if they yeah. are even if they there are is something valid about it which is pretty i don't know that's really complex right there if you yeah, think about it, it. Is, that's, it is it's it's the sort of it's the sort of thing that makes you like you almost kind of lose your head trying to figure out who's really right here you know yeah 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 Sometimes it's best just to assume that everybody's wrong. <laughs> I often do. I often do. <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Moving on to section three. In the aftermath of the tragedy, Shar and Garma are on a spaceship assisting with cleanup efforts. A scene that kind of reminds me of Planetess. While in space, they see a large Federation assault ship passed by instead of helping with the cleanup efforts the federation refuses to take blame and instead chooses to display their might as if to warn the space noise against doing anything out of line Shar also sees a mobile worker in space one of the prototype mobile suits and garma tells him that dozel is secretly developing them for military use Back in the colony, a Xeon official under the watchful eye of Giran Zabi is taking advantage of the Federation's mistake to rally the people, giving a speech detailing the Federation's failure to apologize and take responsibility for the tragedy. 
the people of side three erupt into protests against the Federation and call for independence. Later on, Degwin Zabi warns Giran to be careful because he doesn't think the colonies could win a war. Degwin even says that Giran has whipped the people into a frenzy with 10 years of propaganda. All of the newly graduated Xeon cadets are upset at what's transpired and there are whispers of attacking the Federation barracks on side three. They're looking to Garma, but Shar is the one who really gives him a nudge. He convinces or manipulates Garma into taking the lead and rallying the troops. Shar, you see, has a plan. Later that night, everything is set into motion. There's also a Sharma scene where Shar helps Garma put on his coat. That's a very, <laughs> that's a, that's another one of those moments. <laughs> They're like looking into each other's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot to it too. There's, um, cause emotionally speaking, it's, it's a moment where Garma, if this is the scene that I'm thinking of, there's, it's it's the moment where Shar is trying to convince Garma to take, you know, this is your time in history to to take the mm-hmm. lead. This is where leaders are made, where heroes are made, right? That it's mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And so he's trying to convince Garma to to take action. And Garma, you know, understandably is just He's nervous. He's nervous, he's insecure, he's afraid of 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 taking this huge leap of of rallying the the cadets to rise up against the Federation. And yeah, Charges tenderly gives him this like knowing speech and look. And uh, it's, it's a very tender moment between these two guys. Yeah. They're, they're getting ready and putting on like a battle coat or something, battle yeah. coats. And, and Garma's like, I'm having trouble getting this hook on. And then Char yeah. helps him. And then there's just this moment, page 134, where he he like puts the hook on for for Garma. It looks like he's just zipping up his jacket, but he has both of his hands on Garma's chest, and then Garma has both of his hands on Shar's <laughs> hands, and they're just staring into each other's eyes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then and then the you know the following scenes just do more to add fuel to that fire, where he's just like, "Can you come with me?" And and yeah. you know Shar's just essentially saying. You know, just do like we've we've been doing. Just do like we did last time at that other uh, uh, mission. You you know what to do. Essentially saying, I believe in you. You know, exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, and then at that point, a third guy comes in, and he it feels like even he thinks he's it's it's kind of a he walked in on something moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me cover the rest of the chapter, and then we can uh, laugh at that. Yeah. So before heading out for the mission. Murata, Shar's original roommate, gives him the visor that would end up becoming his trademark. And that's a scene where, uh, if you look in the background of that scene, Shar, uh, Garma actually looks kind of jealous that Murata gives him the visor. Oh, wait, I didn't even notice that. Now I gotta yeah, see this. Look at it. <sighs> so Garma rallies the troops and everyone is gung ho. Zena, Mia? Another one of the top students in their graduating class <laughs> is assigned the role of keeping Dozel distracted. She holds him at gunpoint while Garma and his forces begin to roll out. The operation begins and Shar and Garma have the element of surprise on the Federation garrison. Yeah, so you see that 
yeah, yeah. panel where Dharma's like giving him kind of dagger eyes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just it's funny, man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So this chapter it just continues on with with the fallout of everything that happened before. You know, it it almost it, it it's it's basically just dominoes falling at this point. Mm-hmm. Every everything that has been established up to this point um has has just been more fuel for the fire that's going to happen right and yeah like i said earlier there was already uh a mistrust and uh a resentment towards the federation but this this comet hitting the the station or or you know whatever colony. It's called, the colony like that that was just the thing they needed not just char but also Guren, you know for them mm-hmm. to enact their plans cuz you can tell that Guren, there's that line where you know he's been plotting propaganda for 10 years so maybe he didn't know that this asteroid or this comet thing was going to happen but he's taking he, advantage yeah, you could basically tell that he knew that at some point the Federation was going to mess up and it was just going to be a matter of time before he would he could use that as the thing that would set off the principality, right? Mm-hmm. And and you're right, the way they depict the Federation showing up and you know, showing up without really any care or concern for the debris and the, <laughs> the people <laughs> right without any care or concern for the people and really again just more concerned about protecting themselves and uh providing this show of force so that if people are unhappy they'll be in a position to strike them and slap down that hand they can quell any riots and protests. Exactly, exactly. That, that's really the purpose of those soldiers, I think. Yeah, well, I guess you could say that there's enough plausible deniability where... Because I think there's a, a one point... It might be in the next volume where they're, the Federation and the Principality are having talks and the guy even... The guy representing the Federation even goes, what proof of that is there, you know? Mm, mm. Uh, so So there's... It's like there's room for plausible deniability, but I think realistically speaking, you could look at that and say it was we, their we, responsibility. Yeah, the Federation was responsible. Yeah, we all knew what you were thinking. We all knew that you were here, and uh, you know, you were more here to show uh, a force to protect your own butts than you were to help us, and and that's. I think that's a sentiment that isn't inaccurate. It's it's fair, you know. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So everything just kind of falls into place, and Char, being the astute tactician that he is, decides that at this point he's been grooming <laughs> Garma. <laughs> To the point where he's made him a hero amongst the other students. He he's put him in a position where he's got the most respected position, and because of his grades and his academics, 
and his performance, but also because of his family and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, his background, right? Yeah. So at this point, he just needs to give him that one final shove where he's going to take take act. He's going to take an action that's going to cement him as a hero in the minds of the people of the Principality of Xeon. And mm-hmm. it, it's it's myth-building, you know? If, if I'd say that Char is just an excellent storyteller at this point, he knows <laughs> how to... He knows all the proper pieces that he needs to, to have in place in order to build a proper mythology around a person. He, he would be a great marketing uh, director. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. So he sets it all up, and uh, before the Federation can quell the protest, uh, what does he do? He he takes the few cadets that he has, and he makes strategic strikes in their locations, and he uh, cuts off the the leadership, which we've established. Uh, the leadership of the Federation are just kind of incompetent at this point. So, yeah, you know, he cuts them, the, the rest of the military off from the leadership and holds them hostage and forces them to stand down. And as a result, you know, order is eventually restored, but it isn't until... Uh, it isn't until the Zabis are put into this pretty tough position... So the Federation, you know, we're getting in. Do you want to oh, just get straight into the next chapter? No, no, no. I'm sorry. I, I, I misread it. I misread it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, the, I'll just stop there until we get into the next chapter. But uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, essentially where we are. Uh, there is that one scene that I wanted to mention where I forget the girl's name, but she comes to Dozel and Zena. Zena comes to Dozel and, he thinks he's uh I don't know if I'm reading this incorrectly, but he thinks he thinks she's sweet on him or he's got a chance. And <laughs> so he, you know, you know, he 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 freshens up and he's like, let her in. And he thinks he's gonna like be wooed or he's gonna woo her, but then she pulls a gun on him and essentially uh uh ties him up so that he can't do anything when Garma rises up with his cadets. I think the part you're thinking of where he like combs his hair and freshens up, that's in the next chapter. Oh, okay, my that, bad. That's when he's about to like reprimand her and he ends up asking her to be with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even but in, in this chapter... In this chapter, he just thinks that she wants some advice or something or she has some kind of issue that she needs to talk to. Okay. Okay. So I... Okay. All right, that's that's fair. I mean, there... I. I don't know. I, I think I got the impression that I don't know where I got the impression, but even before then, I, I just felt like he was a like it felt like she got a little more leeway than most other cadets because, you know. Yeah, because he does have the line where he tells her, usually I'm not even awake at this time of night. Yeah. You know, implying that I don't just allow any You're of special. my students to come visit me. Yeah. 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 Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to jump ahead. I just I was uh, flipping through the book and I thought that's where it ended, so I was moving forward. But 
yeah, we, we can talk about this section first. Just the the rise of uh, Garma and his cadets as they, you know, take over the Federation leadership and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, totally humiliate and embarrass them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any other commentary because if I, if I did say anything, it would just be reiterating all the stuff you just said. So yeah. we can move on to the next section. Yeah, sure. Okay. Section four. The surprise attack comes from two directions as Shara and Garma each lead a contingent of troops that completely catch the Federation by surprise. The fighting is fierce and the Xeon forces do suffer some casualties, but the final outcome was never truly in doubt as Shar and his troops find the Federation command center and force a surrender. Eventually, Dozel makes his way to the scene and seems to be shocked at what Garma has wrought. But he, is also, but he also seems relieved that Garma is okay. As a result of all this, the Federation garrison is forced to pull out of Side 3, and the Xeon cadets are treated as conquering heroes in a parade in the streets of the capital before a massive crowd of celebrating, exuberant citizens. However, things are much more tense during a meeting between Xeon and Federation leadership. The Federation suggests that a Xeon leader should commit harakiri or ritual suicide as penance for the attack. The Xeon leaders suggest that the Federation brought this upon themselves by neglecting the colonies and letting the meteoroid strike the colony. Degwin Zabi arrives at the meeting and appeases the Federation. However, in private, he furiously berates Dozel in front of Giran and Kisilia not only for pushing them closer to war, but for putting Garma's life in danger. In the aftermath, Dozel is forced to demote Shar, knowing that he pushed Garma into leading the attack. Shar decides he will take this time to go back to Earth, but also lets Dozel know that he'd like to be a mobile suit pilot one day. On Earth, Federation leadership discusses top-secret footage of a prototype Xeon mobile suit in action in Abawaku, a Xeon asteroid. The leaders also mention that with what happened inside 3, they have to pull out all of their people, including their expats, but that this will give them a chance to pull out defectors as well, including Dr. Minovsky. Tem Ray, who is developing Mecha for the Federation, looks forward to these developments and prepares to move back to space so he can continue his projects. We end the chapter with the scene of Tem Roy going home to tell his slovenly but tech-obsessed son, Amaro, the news that they're going to return to space. Mm-hmm. All right, so this is the chapter with the aftermath of the attack. Um, and we get to see a little bit more of those political developments and the, the, the conflict and the boiling tensions begin to yeah. rise up even more than they already have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what were some of the things that you were chomping at the bit to say about <laughs> this section? Yeah, it's I, I think I think with a lot of historical or the way that we imagine history to happen, it always feels like it's this one thing that kicks off and we we often don't really think about all the moving pieces that surround it or or just how slow moving it is right where so the war between the federation and the principality didn't just 
obviously it didn't just happen out of nowhere, right? Yeah. And this situation played out in a way that put the leaders of the Zabi family into a position where they had to, a difficult decision to make because it directly placed them, it directly placed uh, Garma in in the middle of their situation, right? It mm-hmm. like it it placed his life directly under threat, and as a result, uh, you know, it wasn't the type of thing where he uh, where I forget what the leader of the Zabi family is. What's his name? Degwin, the father. Yeah, the or father. Were you thinking of Garen? No, I was thinking of Degwin. Okay. So I think throughout the series so far, Degwin feels more level-headed than than uh, uh, Giren, Giren, right? Yeah. Like, Giren obviously is Machiavellian. He, he obviously thirsts for power. But Degwin, you know, there's, there's something about him that upon inspection, you could say he might be more level-headed and less... Uh, less inclined for war like he's been doing everything in his power to, if anything to um maintain order if anything right mm-hmm. but because uh because of garma is is now directly involved in in this situation uh the federation and uh degwin have this conversation have this meeting where they want to talk about the consequences of this and you know, you know, just as a sign of just how cowardly the Federation is, they don't want to be the ones to arrest this guy or take him. And so, yeah, what do they, they say? They want they want the zombies to volunteer, or the, they want Zeon to voluntarily, you know, punish themselves. Basically, exactly, exactly, right. And we all know that's not going to happen. Yeah. And, and the end of the book, or the end of this chapter or section like shows that because uh we we see the dynamics between Garma and the rest of the family and it's clear that Degwin and Dozel both like dote on him you know mm-hmm. and and Degwin even goes so far as to say I never should have sent you to the military academy I never should have like told you these stories and and made you you know made you feel like you had to live up to us as as military heroes or anything you know yeah so it's 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 a precarious position to be in and uh yeah like even though that's kind of where the conversation ends or where they you know the the quote-unquote resolution that they've come up with we don't actually we haven't actually seen that play out but Degwin just ends the conversation by saying, like, I forget exactly what he says, but in in spirit, he he says, like, we'll we'll take care of it or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's just kind of where it ends. Um, you know, before we move on to the next chapter, uh, there's a round of demotions. People are punished, you know, within within institutional guidelines. Uh, so Dozel is demoted and Shar 
again, playing three-dimensional chess here, he yeah. he he knows that by uh by getting close to Garma, he knows that it offers him some degree of protection because he's ingratiated himself to him, right? Mm-hmm. So, and again, it's it's another huge risk that he took because how do you know they just won't sacrifice this guy as yeah. a sacrificial lamb? But they don't, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, so his only punishment is that he he's demoted and he's, I assume, dishonorably discharged from uh from the from the military and he decides to go back to earth and reestablish himself uh and yeah and then there's also that funny section in the end where dozel the girl uh shoot i forget her name again. zena zena she comes she comes over to dozel and i don't know if he really believes this or if he's just using it he's just taking the opportunity to use it but he he's talking to her and he's talking about how they want me to commit suicide but i i i was under the impression that it was already established that they weren't going to go that far yeah so so it just felt like he was just using this as an opportunity to you know get her to agree to be with him to sire children with him yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if if I had it's, known, it's a now funny that moment that, of vulnerability. <laughs> if I had known now that that's all it took, <laughs> <laughs> I need to tell women that tomorrow they're gonna they're gonna force me to eviscerate myself. <laughs> well, I'm I'm looking at the scene and yeah. he doesn't actually say that they're expecting him to. Uh, commit suicide he he says he tells her i'll be resigning from my post here over what's happened poor oversight on my part i have yeah. to hold myself to account oh yeah he does say harakiri oh yeah. yes you're right you're right yeah yeah, yeah. right like that is so I, that is something that he mentions to her yeah well, so when i read that i wasn't sure if like wait is he just doing that just to get her sympathy or is he uh <laughs> i think so i feel yeah, like it right like it right i mean i think he's just a dumb enough of a guy to be earnest as yeah. well like i don't think he's trying to manipulate her or yeah, yeah or anything yeah. i think this is like because it's he, genuine yeah he, yeah he, he genuinely feels that fear i think he's he's genuinely uh experiencing the fear and he's sharing it with her to to show her that he's at this point in his life where he he wants to have a family. Yeah, yeah. So and, yeah, it's it's a it's a bizarre scene that you would expect to find in like a shoujo manga or something. Yeah, and she accepts. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny though because that whole scene, uh, she doesn't really say much. Like especially on the last page, I'm looking at page 190 or uh, not 191. Uh huh. When he when he uh basically makes his proposal. She looks at him and it's totally wordless, but she looks shocked <laughs> and then she looks relieved and it's it's yeah. just a funny a funny transition. But his facial expression is kind of terrifying. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. that's part of the comedy of it because he, yeah, he just yeah, looks yeah. like for an sure. ogre. For sure, for sure. Like 
there is something about him that I think at his best he's kind of he's kind of a lovable oaf. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's uh, following that. Yeah, there's this is the the first we see of Amaro in a while. You know, mm-hmm. we we see there's the revelations about um, it's the first um, we see his dad in a long time because we saw his dad way back in volume one really briefly. Oh, remember? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. 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 I actually when I was reading this, I I didn't even remember that it was his dad. It wasn't until I saw Amro that I was like, oh, that's who that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been that long. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, there's the revelation about the mobile suits and you know, we see that there's this creeping escalation as uh I think it's fair to assume that Giran is moving pieces in uh preparation for uh this massive military action that he's going to take mm-hmm. a lot of foresight on that guy's part yeah. yeah i guess when you want war to happen you can make it happen so you yeah it makes sense to prepare yeah if you're yeah. in that p- position yeah i mean i guess if you're a warmonger you want to be developing your arms constantly so yeah, it makes sense, and and uh, like even more so than the Federation, who are probably just kind of working from a position of defense more than anything. Yeah, like it feels like the only reason why they would uh, approach the development of mobile suits is as a response to what they know is going on at Xeon. Yeah, exactly. I mean that's pretty much what we're seeing happen is uh you know when we when they find out that these uh, mobile suits are going to be the game changer uh yeah yeah but it's yeah it, it isn't up until this point where you see amuro and that's the point where i was like oh wow so i haven't really seen him for like a volume and a half up until now Mm-hmm. So there, there's a part of me that was thinking, um, man, like I, I guess I could see how someone would look at this saga and be like, oh, I guess Shar is the hero, or Shar is the the you know the point of view or whatever, you know. But, but mm-hmm. yeah. Anyways, did you have anything or? You want to move on to the next section? We can move on. So section five begins with a gorgeous painting of a green and blue landscape, perfectly capturing the mood of this chapter's earth setting. We are in the Amazonas state capital of Manaus. Shar is at the controls of a mobile worker doing construction work. It seems like he's participating in the construction of Jabro. After another long day at work, Shar rides through the city with a couple of co-workers and we get some scenes of protesters illustrating that the local populace is none too happy about the Federation encroaching on their land. Shar and his co-workers visit a local casino and Shar watches one of his companions lose some games. While they're there, a large intimidating man wearing a turban sits at the table. A mysterious girl accompanies the man. With her hand on his shoulder, 
the man starts to win big before losing. Later on, Shar comes across the girl outside who is sitting alone at the docks, staring intently at an old, weathered photo of her family. They have a conversation, and it's implied that she helped the man win his bets before intentionally making him lose. The man returns, and we learn her name is Lala. He's not happy. The man is not happy. She's talking to Shar, and he tries to hit her, but Shar intervenes. Suddenly, some goons with guns attack, and the three of them flee together to Shar's construction site. It seems that some people are after Lala. An assassin armed with a chakram beheads the large man, but Shar grabs a shovel to defend Lala. Somehow, Lala helps Shar dodge the chakram, and he's able to kill the assassin. A bunch of other goons show up, so Shar pulls Lala into the mobile worker and sends those guys scattering. Afterward, he offers to take her someplace far away from all this. He offers to take her into space. Yeah, I didn't really have much to say uh, about this section. Um, you know, it, it it gives you some filler in terms of what he was doing, what Shar was doing with his time on Earth. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, see you see that he's kind of picked up working a mobile suit. Uh, so I guess you can tell yourself that when he does end up going to... Uh, back to the principality, he's he's had some experience working mobile suit as an offensive mm-hmm. weapon, right? Or yeah. at least some experience with that. Um, I think one of the things that jumped out at me was the scene where they... It's a brief scene, mm-hmm. but it's the scene when Char is with his coworkers and they're just driving through the city. Mm-hmm. And then we see the protesters yeah. complaining about the Federation. Yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. that's a pretty interesting detail to throw in there because it really shows you that even the people on earth aren't too pleased with the way that the federation conducts itself yeah yeah absolutely and it kind of goes along with uh some of the other stuff that was uh alluded to in the previous volume when i'm thinking specifically of the scene where uh after char or young Casval and Sela ha- have arrived on Earth and they're they're living in Spain and Sela spends all that time helping the refugees and it's implied that they've been just forcibly displaced because of the stuff that the Federation has done, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just does not paint a... It's, it's like the more we know or the more we learn about the Federation, the less we have, the less respect we have for them for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um but that's the thing, right? It's I guess these sorts of governments like I you know, I'm going to assume it's a democracy, right? But you assume that they provide a stability, but that stability very easily becomes content with itself and when it becomes content with itself and bloated and corrupt it very easily loses the faith of the people that are governed by it. Right. Mm-hmm. When, when it only becomes concerned with uh, preserving itself, the stability that comes with preserving itself, that's really not a stability for everyone. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it, it's just a failure of the system. And I guess you could say that, 
it's 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 a reminder for people in in government in leadership that you need to be able to you know if if you truly have the courage of your conviction then you need to lead with that conviction as well you need to lead uh you need to lead like benevolently and you need to lead appropriately yeah Mm -hmm. yeah but uh yeah uh other than that i thought the fight scene was cool where he was fighting the dude with the chakra yeah that was really well illustrated scene yeah it's it's another one where it's kind of violent because it does show the other guy getting uh decapitated Uh but it also doesn't it's not gruesome you know like yeah or it's not gratuitous like they don't focus on the gore or anything it's just enough to let you know wow this this assassin is is dangerous yeah yeah like uh yeah it's it's not like the guy's head gets cut off and there's just a fountain of blood gushing or anything yeah it's not over the top (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's probably just at the level of uh you know uh gore and viscera that i can I find acceptable or that I can stomach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will say that the girl Lala, uh-huh. I, like she's not a character that I know. I, as far as I can tell, she's not a character that I've seen up to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the first time she's appeared in the series. Yeah. So, you know, the, he, he clearly cultivates some sort of relationship with this girl I, I'm hesitant to use the term grooming. <laughs> uh, that, my friends, is what we call a callback. <laughs> but, yeah, he uh, he befriends this young woman. And I don't really know what the nature of their relationship is going to be. I don't know what he... It, it seems to imply that She's a new type, and uh-huh. and I think Char is aware that she has these abilities, and he's going to find a way to use that at some point. If I had to guess, he's going to find a way to use that at some point to his advantage, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. people are just pawns. People just be pawns to him. <laughs> yeah. That is true, man. All right. Let's uh, move on to the next section. Let us go. Section six. It is now UC 0078. A disguised Cassilia Zabi arrives at Granada, one of the two lunar cities. She's aware of Dr. Minovsky's intention to defect. Meanwhile, Tem Ray is in a heated meeting with Anaheim Electronics executives about the status of their mobile suit development project, which lags behind Zeonic, the Xeon weapons developer. Temray insists that they try to pull Minovsky into the fold. Sure enough, Minovsky and a couple of his allies are in a moon buggy heading out of Granada towards Fawn Brown, the other lunar city 4,000 kilometers away. The Federation is aware and makes plans to escort him. However, Rambaral, the Black Tristars, and Shar are already in mobile suits heading to intercept Minovsky. 
So this chapter, yeah, felt like a lot of pieces just moving into place to set up, uh, you know, an action sequence in the next section. Exactly. But there's exactly. a lot of a lot of tension being built up too. Yeah. For sure. Like, uh, yeah, like you were saying, like we've already established that uh, they've been working on these mobile mobile suits, and they're gonna be a big thing. And uh, and I think what's his name, Minovsky? Is that mm-hmm. Minovsky? The guy who's trying to escape. Yeah. Yeah. I. I uh, my understanding of it was that he was uh, he was defect he, he yeah he's defecting to the federation because yeah he's he finds what the principality going uh, is going to do with his technology uh, abhorrent and yeah. Uh, yeah it's like you said like all the pieces are being put into place and it's it's just waiting it's just this tinder right and it's they're just waiting for that one final match to just set it all off. Um, like they're not, they're, they're super priming the pump because like, this is the first time that we see the version of the mobile suits that we know of in, in action, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even though we don't really see anything at the end of this, uh, volume or this chapter section, um, you know, just watching them as they march off at, at the very end of it. It's uh, you know, if if you're a mech lover, I could totally see you just getting jazzed and getting ready. We about to oh, see yeah. some damage, baby. Totally, man. Totally. <laughs> One of the other things I really like about this chapter is how we get to see the moon, and we get to see. I guess it's just more world building, you know. Like we we learned that there are basically two main cities on the moon. Granada and Von Brown and we get a little bit of like what life is like there and just the kind of uh the the cityscape basically um it, it's just cool to see these little details to make this story you know feel feel more alive there's also uh, all the stuff that happens with Temray and the uh, executives it, it's that that scene is interesting too, just because it's more dialogue driven and and you really get the sense of these executives basically being more concerned about profits than anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. It it kind of goes back to like what you were saying earlier about Federation bigwigs, except these guys are uh you know a for profit company. They're just yeah. like these fat cats sitting in their ivory tower and it's not like they care so much about making products to defend people yeah. in preparation for a war it's more just like we can't afford to have uh inferior products because then they're gonna outsell us you know yeah. like we have to beat them yeah like that that's what it's really all about which is i guess very practical but it's also there's just something uh I don't know kind of distasteful about it especially maybe as a as a as a reader we're privy to all sorts of information that these people may not care about or be aware of but yeah I, I can't help but be judgmental well 
I mean, it's still it goes hand in hand with what I was with what I was saying earlier with this idea that a lot of the times the people that live in these places get fed up with uh, the people in power. And often, as is the case, the people in power or the, the people that are the source of this corruption as they see it does it often includes businesses right so there's this sense that everybody is corrupt and uh you know making these deals and just stealing out of our pockets so the only people that benefit are the corrupt politicians and the corrupt businessmen that they are in bed with and you know we out here uh you know the 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 common folk in whatever uh place we live we we happen to be the one that suffer when these things go wrong so it, it just reaffirms that idea that this you know the problems that they have here aren't really too different than the complaints and the issues that people see in our real world mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's, i also that's a good point I also did want to mention that we see a little more of Kisilla here. I didn't even realize it until you said it, but I was like, oh, okay, that's her in a yeah, wig. <laughs> in in this chapter, it's not it's not explicit. It's only until the next chapter when we learn for sure that that was yeah. Kisilla. Because I, I didn't I, I think the first time I read it, I didn't recognize her because of the disguise. Yeah, I was just like, who's this hot chick? Yeah. <laughs> 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 Me likey. <laughs> ah, oh. <laughs> so for those of you who listen, just so you know how my mind works, <laughs> not very complicated. <laughs> uh, who boobies? Bert like. <laughs> It's also interesting to get more uh, scenes with Anaheim Electronics because we had them mentioned in the previous volume. It was kind of offhand, but yeah. there was that scene uh, when when Casval and Artesia arrive on Earth with Jimbo Rao, and it, there's he's still trying to like teach young Casval, you know, the ways of his father and stuff, but. We also learned that that Jimba he wants revenge against the zombies and he's and he mentioned he was in conversations with Anaheim Electronics to supply weapons for you know an uprising back on the colony. You know it was it was the thing that was totally just an old man's foolish pipe dream. Yeah. But I like how these little details are sprinkled in there in in the background and and then eventually more details are revealed. You know, like you, you yeah. get the mention of this company and then now we see a little bit more about them and and what they do yeah see you're you're more diligent about these details than i am i didn't even realize that that was the same company you know yeah but now that you've uh pointed that out to me that totally you're right that's a pretty good detail to put in there because it just shows the callousness of this company that again all they really care about is the bottom line and they're they're not really loyal to anyone or anything except for themselves and the prospect of making another dollar you know yeah. so yeah. they're 
they're really more concerned about if they well not concerned but their entire ethos and ideology is just that well if we're not going to make money from you then we'll make money from your competitors yeah or your enemies yeah exactly one way or another we're gonna make buck off you yeah yeah, yeah. and really the, the only it's reason why I, the, <laughs> yeah it is and they're i guess the main reason why i remember them is because um i've watched other gundam shows and anaheim electronics becomes a, a player in some of those other shows they're not yeah maybe player is too strong of a word but they they basically become like the primary uh, weapons manufacturer, and uh, I don't think this is too big a spoiler. I won't be super specific about it, but in in future Gundam stories that take place in this timeline in the future, uh, Anaheim Electronics ends up becoming this company that basically sells mobile suits to both sides secretly, so they can you know keep the war going and yeah. continue making weapons. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not like the sad thing is I don't think that that's necessarily a flight of fancy either. Yeah, like, that's I, based on shoot. I, I, I have to do some research, but I remember there was there was definitely a company that was infamous for selling weapons to both sides of the war. Yeah, yeah, like it it just doesn't surprise me uh, if that was based on a real thing. Mm-hmm. It sucks. Yeah, you ready to move on to the next section? Yeah. Section 7. The Xeon mobile suits toy with Minovsky's buggy. The Federation forces launch a dozen of their own new mobile suits to intervene. It is the first mobile suit battle in history. Despite being outnumbered by more than 2 to 1, Ramba, the Black Tristars, and Shar massacre the Federation mobile suits, which look like early gun cannons. In the battle, Minovsky is killed. Tem Ray is in a shuttle flying above but there's little he can do other than be a first-hand witness to the carnage mm. meanwhile Cassilia meets with the mayor of granada in a diplomatic attempt to establish a military base in the city she is refused but we see that shortly after the mayor dies in a vehicular accident coincidence <laughs> <laughs> Tem Ray gives an impassioned speech to a bunch of Anaheim Electronics bigwigs, trying to make them understand how the introduction of mobile suits has changed warfare forever. Zeonic is far ahead of them, and Zeon is about to declare its independence, making it more urgent than ever that the Federation have access to equally effective weapons. He shares his new project, the RX-78, also codenamed Gundam. At the end of Chapter 7... Tem Ray and Amro Ray arrive at Side 7, a colony that is still under construction, which will serve as cover for Tem to continue his mobile suit development project. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. The Well, first of all, I want to start out with just, again, I'm not, I don't have the most articulate way to describe it, but that entire first battle is just, you know, if you if we've been building up to this moment where we see the first battle uh, between uh, mobile suits happen as, as just if we've just been chomping at the bit to see this moment happen, mm-hmm. like it didn't disappoint. It's a pretty kick ass fight. 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I do think it's pretty wild that even though they had these 12, uh, you know, 12 mobile suits of their own, they, they weren't able to do anything to the four of them, the four Tri-Stars and, or three Tri-Stars and Char. It's, uh, well, I mean, I thought that was a little far-fetched. I was, I was in my mind, I was like, you, you could have taken down like one of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. it was, it was, it was just like, fighting a, a dozen puppies or something just, yeah that's true it yeah. was like those other the federation forces they really had no chance yeah but so, some of those scenes it looked like the pilots just panicked and gave up and tried to run away and just got chopped down when they were trying to run i think they gave like a, an explanation for it when uh you know amuro's dad was giving his speech where he was I guess his comparison, I, I, I'm not sure if this is this section. I think it's this section. Mm-hmm. But where he says that, you know, these the tanks that we were using are built to fight infantry, whereas the tanks, uh, they're like tanks that were built to fight infantry, whereas the mobile suits that uh, the principality was using are like tanks that are, you know, built to fight other tanks or mm-hmm. something like that. I, I don't remember if I uh, remember that exactly right, but you know. Yeah, I, no, that that's that's correct. Yeah, I mean, I, that's I, I suppose that's as good a explanation as any. Uh, yeah, it's for like the like the early tanks. Yeah, early tanks were designed to f- face off against infantry or foot soldiers, and then yeah, people ended up developing tanks to take out other tanks. Yeah, and you know, it's just this constant escalation and development yeah. of of weaponry. It, I was watching this uh, YouTube video about like war history, and they were they were talking about Italy in World War Two, and you know they uh, and how like Italy just didn't have the resources to make uh, the same level of tanks that the Germans were making. Mm-hmm. So they they showed pictures of some of the tanks that the Italians made, and they're just like these little tuk tuks or kind of like the meter made cars that you see driving around the city, but with like little machine guns attached to them. So I, I imagine it'd be like one of those going up against a tank tank, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just, and, and it was the, the funny thing about these tanks is they're literally just built for one person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's pretty, uh, it was almost kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there was that entire uh, scene where Amuro's dad is in in the uh, in the talking to the conference room. executives. Yeah, he's yeah. talking in the conference room uh, to the executives, and you just feel his level of urgency because he knows what's going. Like as as I guess you know, as a sort of futurist, he knows what the trajectory of this technology is, and he is panicked at the thought of what's what's going to happen. Yeah. So he's really trying to get the idea across that we need to get something otherwise. And, you know, and us being readers with knowledge privy to their future, like what ends up happening is the, you know, before they can even get their mobile suit out, the war happens and half of humanity dies. Yeah. Just before that. So he wasn't wrong. He he certainly knew what what the threat was, and he was he so he was on the money. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's also the scene with Casilla here where she's talking to the mayor. I, like, I'm not 100% sure what that was really supposed to show other than, you know, just to give an example of just her ferocity and cunning as, uh, you know, as she was trying to establish alliances in the build-up to war. She's uh, she's talking to the mayor of this one uh, colony, right? It's uh, the city of Granada on the moon. Yeah, and the idea was that if if you align with us and let us use you as a, a, a station, as a jumping off station, uh, yeah. like she says at one point, like we won't ever, uh, as long as you're mayor, we won't use you as, uh, you know, as a launch point. Yeah, and, and she meant and, that you know, literally. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and for us as the view as the readers you, you know knowing what we know of her it, i can completely imagine that with a menacing tone with yeah with the idea being that hey you should probably be extra careful going home tonight <laughs> yeah totally yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah it, it's it's a if you think about that scene uh look at page 345 like the scene ends with with uh her killing uh the traitor in her midst, right? Yeah. But like the scene where she like the page previous on page three forty four, that's when she talks to the mayor uh, before he leaves the room, and he says that I regret we cannot meet your request, Lady Cecilia. And she's like, oh, that's quite all right. Get home safely. And then you have the scene where she has her other lackey kill the traitor. Yeah. Or the guy who's not necessarily a traitor, but just the guy who talked too much. Yeah. Um, and then you flip the page, and then the first panel on the next page is Mayor dies in accident. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, like you don't even need to see him like driving off a cliff or anything, you know? Like just yeah. having that on a billboard, like presumably some kind of news report, so that everybody is alerted to what happened. It's like, man. Yeah, like your imagination does the rest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just a total indicator of just how ruthless she ruthless is. Ruthless she is exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it ends with Amaro finally making it to side 7. Mm-hmm. You know, just where our story starts. Mhm. Mhm. Want to move on to the final section? Yeah. yeah, let's look at the final section. Section 8. The final chapter of this volume opens with Girin showing Degwin the impressive armada that he's built up for Zeon. Degwin isn't entirely convinced that they have what it takes to defeat the Federation in an all-out war, and he even believes that war would be, quote, the worst tumult in human history. But Girin is confident enough to claim that it would only take them a month to win. Shortly afterwards, Zeon declares its independence from the Federation. Back on side seven, we're treated to some idyllic calm before the storm type of scenes with Amro, Fraubo, Kai, Hayato, and their other nameless friends living that school life. Kai, being the troublemaker of the bunch, drags Hayato, Amro, and a few other kids on a joyride through the restricted area one night. Federation soldiers shoot at them 
then give them a beating to teach them to stay away. Is it excessive force? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) We see the passage of time as it's around Christmas now, and Amro is still essentially left alone by his father, who's busy working, and Frau looks out for him. Then, in Universal Century 79, January 3rd, the Principality of Zeon declares war on the Earth Federation. That same day, they immediately launch multiple attacks. Dozel's fleet crushes a Federation flotilla, Cassilia overwhelms Granada and captures Von Braun on the moon, and Zeon also attacks Side 2, the colony which had declared loyalty to the Federation. It's a violent shooting war. This volume closes with Fraubo checking in on Amaro and breaking down in tears because of the fear and uncertainty that now surrounds their lives because of the war. The final scene ends with Amaro confessing that he's scared too, but that there's nothing he can do about it. Mm. A poignant end to the chap to the not only the chapter but to the volume. You know, yeah. this whole volume was like a build up to everything where we finally see the beginning of the war. Yeah, yeah. Pretty dramatic fashion, too. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting, this section, you know? Uh, it's interesting to me, because one of the things that I noticed was it, it they showed a bunch of the young uh, cadets mm-hmm. that we met earlier in the series uh the the guys who would eventually land on white base yeah the the civilians that eventually landed on white base and becoming part of the crew yeah uh the you know the kind of the exactly all of them and it's it, it was interesting to see that they were these young juvenile delinquents and when you look at that in comparison to uh, what we see at the beginning of the volume, when you look at Shar and the young kids and what they get into uh, when when they essentially start a war with the or not start a war, but create mm-hmm. the foundations for an incident that would eventually lead to a war with the it Federation. Was, it was a flashpoint. Yeah, there we go. And a good flashpoint, not the kind made by Geoff Johns. Um, <laughs> That was an alley-oop right there, you know? Yeah. I throw it up, and you just dunked it. Yeah. and I, You you give the good passes, and I got the good looks. There we go. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I thought that was a pretty interesting parallel to see that in both these cases, in both these societies, the young people were the ones that were the, kind of the focal points for these stories, you know? Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think we mentioned this earlier in one of our in one of the earlier episodes of uh, Gundam: The Origin, but we were talking about how, like, I think I was talking about how it reminded me of Akira, and how that was mm-hmm. a story that focused around how their government had failed them, and it wasn't just their government, but it was like the the tent poles and the foundations of their society. So we're Adults. talking about. Yeah, adults. We're talking about businesses, religion. We're talking about, uh, yeah, the government, the schools, everything that they were telling young people to aspire to be had failed them. And Akira was really about these kids 
rebelling against that. And even though they were seen as these juvenile delinquents, it, it, it does kind of make you question, like, what would it really have been that much of a better fate if they had grown up to become part of this machine? Mm. Um, and and I I feel like that that has parallels to what's going on here, too, you know, because, yeah. again, we're just looking at how inept and corrupt the the people in power are and these young people on both sides are just they have so many reasons to be fed up and uh displeased with the situation that with the world that they're being left behind so you know it's it's kind of no surprise that when you have young disaffected youth with nowhere to go uh where do they go with all that energy and all that frustration but towards well in in the worst cases radicalism but in other cases like it's enough to push them in a direction to just overthrow the entirety of the system that does exist Mm -hmm. you know it's yeah it's it's a crazy thought it's it's like maybe this is telling of my maturity or age or just what it's like to be on this side of the the age gap but to be like hey stability is not a bad thing like you know corruption is bad i get it and sometimes things don't work the way you want and we're not happy with it but i'd much rather have that than you know a zombie apocalypse where (laughs) the best thing for me is to like you know as long as i can survive and kill everybody else before they kill me then that's a good life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When faced with the option between unfettered chaos or the humdrum of stability, I'd probably just take stability. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the lesson I would impart on young people. (laughs) (laughs) I think you did pick up on one of the key tenets of Gundam's themes, though, because I'd say most Gundam stories especially the original Gundam and pretty much any of the Gundams created Gundam stories uh, by Yoshiki Tomino, the originator of Gundam. Like one of his key themes was, is always, and it's probably not even just Gundam, but like his other anime too. One of his key themes tends to be that adults are ruining society and it's up to the youth to change the future. You know, it's, it's, for all the criticism that he gets for his work being dour or depressing or dark, it actually has a pretty hopeful theme. You know, just the idea that uh, kids can change the world. And yeah. it's it's like this empowering thing where a lot of his shows and stories focus on all these horrible things that happen because adults are in charge and because adults cling to their power or continue to just commit acts of war because of i don't know aggression or a lust for for more or greed things of things like that right like it's it's all these negative concepts that arise as a result of adults having too much influence on the world so most of the time 
in his stories, Tomino has kids or young people be the ones who who fight against that. They're the ones who who rage against that machine. Right, right. They're the ones who try to fight back and even possibly change things entirely. Mm. It, it's I don't know. There's something inspirational or empowering about it, and it, it it's it doesn't necessarily always turn out to be a happy ending where these kids always find success but Mm -hmm. uh just the idea that they're hunting for something better than what exists you know like i think that that goes a pretty long way yeah 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 man i i also wanted to talk about that ending a little bit too which you had Mm -hmm. mentioned where you know in what is that uc 00790103 uh when yeah. you know this is the moment that we've all been waiting for just the moment where the war finally starts and it's it's like okay we've come full circle this is this is um you know the bookend to what we've been building up to right mm-hmm. and yeah just to see just all of this happen really just in a couple of pages it, it does make you it does emulate that feeling that you know when when the tipping point finally does occur like war it just happens even though there's a lot of things that build up to it but that 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 instant where the the reality sets in that actual war is actually occurring mm-hmm. on this such a on this massive a scale it also, I think, accurately captures that feeling of even though war hasn't arrived where we are yet, there's this weird feeling of I'm trying to live my life, but at the same time, I can't ignore the realities that there's this great impending thing where a lot of people are going to die in in the yeah. background, you know? Yeah. Um it kind of makes yeah, me think we oh. we definitely see that with Frau and her family as they watch the news and yeah like Frau's concerns because of what's going on yeah, yeah. It, it it definitely lends a, a heavy air of gravitas to yeah. to their otherwise idyllic lives it makes me it makes me think about what what happened in or what's happening in Ukraine and Russia just i yeah. remember that first day where it happened it was just I think even up to that point, everybody was telling themselves, oh, there's no way this is going to happen. We're never going to see anything like that again. Like, I mean, I don't know how you felt about it, but I I was certainly, I think, even at the time as we were building up to it, I was watching a lot of news about it. So I was pretty sure it was going to happen, but it just felt like everybody around me was either... um, you know, ignorant of that, or they were just telling themselves, oh, this isn't a thing that's going to happen, you know? Yeah. And and when it did happen, like, that first couple of weeks, again, at least for me, that first couple of weeks was something that, it, it filled me with a sense of dread, because it was just this feeling of, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know what this means for the rest of us, like people are gonna die. It's gonna be this really terrible thing that's gonna happen. Um, 
I guess the peculiar thing about that is, you know, all these months out, and this is this is kind of sad to say, but we've gotten used to it. Yeah, it's, it's we've like that's become the it. new status quo. Yeah, yeah. That, we've become numb to it. Exactly. I was thinking the same it, thing. And it's just become this thing that's background noise to us. And you know, in in the instant in the instance where Russia invaded Ukraine, it was. I know it was all over the news. I don't know. I, I can't speak for how people were feeling on the ground, but I was I was certainly concerned. And it, it just feels like maybe that's the one thing this book... Well, okay, I, I guess the thing about Gundam is eventually the war does come to them. But yeah, I guess that's the one feeling that, that we we miss in this is just the the banality of war, right? Eventually... If it's far enough away, it just becomes noise to us. Yeah. And again, that's it's unfortunate, but yeah. Yeah, that's true, man, because definitely when the invasion began, I was checking the news like constantly, like especially that first night I was, you know, I'm just on Twitter and refreshing and, and just seeing everything that's going on. Uh, tweets from reporters and footage from people uh, and the the probably like for the next month I would I would follow pretty consistently you know yeah if not like every day at least like every other day or something yeah. and just spend a good amount of time reading about what was happening uh, and then eventually it it gets like I don't know tiring to constantly check the news so yeah so like i got to a point where i don't check the news in ukraine every day anymore but i check periodically and i just assume that if something really major happens i'm gonna hear about it you know yeah but obviously like for somebody who's directly for people who are living in the ukraine (laughs) yeah exactly there's no checking out of that there's you're just it's they live uh, with it on a daily basis exactly yeah it's a reality mm. yeah i don't know war is a it's a stupid messed up complicated thing mm-hmm. yeah well did you have any overall thoughts of uh the volume that we read any other like observations or comments uh that you thought are were well, worth mentioning i had a few more final thoughts yeah, generally sure, shoot okay first of all this volume i noticed it doesn't have as many extras compared to some of the other other ones like all this really has is two paintings they're gorgeous paintings so i'm glad we have even that but uh there's no essay or or anything like that from anybody uh another thing that i really appreciated about this volume is the exploration of the political situation mm. The world building is excellent and all of the events that transpire in this volume help us understand how we got to the one year war in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I think the build up was suitably dramatic and logical from especially from the overall perspective of the war itself, but uh, also seeing the, the little machinations that Shar gets himself up to that that's interesting in a different way because it's more uh character oriented 
but I, I like I definitely like seeing all of the information that were given regarding how the war broke out. All the information that I like all the information that were given regarding how uh, the people of Zeon continued to rally and support the Zabis. And, you know, basically got, got to this point where they were inflamed by by propaganda and uh, warmongering politicians yeah. to be in full support of an all-out war against who they perceive to be their oppressors. Mm. You know, and on some level, that's not entirely wrong either. I think we see enough of the dark underbelly of the Federation to, to understand why the citizens of Zeon would be vulnerable to the propaganda of the Zabi family. Mm-hmm. So it makes it, it makes it pretty understandable. Yeah. 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 It's uh there are a lot of parallels to real life for sure. And uh, like it's, it does a good job of capturing and condensing down in a digestible way what those things really look like uh for this you know for for a work of fiction so and and that's and that's a kind of complexity that i don't think we get with uh those mangas that we were we were reading like i don't think we get that with demon slayer for sure (laughs) yeah um well what if somebody tells you we just have to get to like volume 15 in order to see all the political backstory explored. I will say, I was about to say that I do think attack on Titan does have some of that stuff in the later volumes. Okay. Uh, okay. Cause I, I forgot if I mentioned it in the, in the you, you last watched podcast. A spoiler. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was in Vegas. I was bored and like, I just had the TV on. So I was just flipping through channels and, I was like, oh, I know what this is. This is Attack on Titan. But it, I think it was in one of the more current seasons. So I ended up watching it, even though it was the dub. And uh, I got a <laughs> sense of what the, I think, what the grand revelation for them is. Or at least one of the big revelations. Yeah. Uh, like, I got just enough information where I was able to piece it together. So I could be wrong, but I'm pretty confident I know what what's what. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a chance that attack on titan might have things to say about you know war and society and you know uh societal dynamics that might justify that first volume or Mm -hmm. you know might justify sitting through a couple of volumes i don't know if i'm going to read it yet or watch it yet but maybe it's not out of the question it's not out of the exactly like anything a lot of is possible. Yeah, anything is possible. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I I do appreciate the way that we see the Federation presented in this volume, where we we get a picture of the different ways that they've become this overbloated governmental organization that that uh I don't know is guilty of overreach or just doesn't care about people. Yeah. yeah. Like you, you definitely see it early on when the Federation officials manning the monitoring station, just through their total neglect, the they allow a meteoroid to strike a colony and 
not only damage the colony but kill people as well yeah and then you see it later on when Shar is on earth and we learn that the people who live in south america uh, where jabra is being built they don't like the fact that the federation is just building this gigantic base on their land and then uh when we're on side seven with kai and amro and all the other kids when when they go into the restricted zone those soldiers just straight up open fire without any kind of warning whatsoever uh and then when even when they find out who these kids are and that they're just you know out for a joyride or whatever you want to call it yeah they still they could have just like sent them home or or like called their parents or something but they straight up gave them beatings yeah <laughs> you know they're like in high school and these soldiers just like beat them up because they can they're pretty callous jerks like yeah. I, I could definitely see how how it would get people to have a resentment towards authority figures. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Another thought I had about this volume is how it depicts uh, the familial themes that we've been seeing throughout the story. Like the things I specifically think of are the zombies and how they uh, relate to each other. There's Shar and even Sela briefly. And then we, we also get some scenes with Amro and his father. And then there's also Frau and her mother and grandpa. Like it's just the different ways that family is presented in this volume is it's quite fascinating. Because like with Shar, he's at this point where he, he his parents are both dead and he left his sister. So he, he basically lives as if he has no family and he's mm. just doing everything for himself to suit his own purposes whatever they may be. Yeah. And then even though Sela is barely in this volume, we do see that one scene where she visits uh, Texas colony and, and sees Roger Asnable. And there's like still this level of compassion and basic humanity within her that it it's interesting to think how much of a foil she is to, to Char. Yeah. Cause they, they basically went through all of the same events in life and yet and they had different takeaways <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> exactly I, I really like how the manga drives that home like they it really does a good job of of framing Sela as a foil to Shar because I, I feel like typically we just think of Shar and Amro as foils for each other yeah but to throw Sela in the mix it I feel like that adds um a lot of depth to her character yeah as well as to shars so well i feel like at this point at this point shar and uh sela might be more of a foil to each other than shar and amuro i mean mm-hmm. i think shar and amuro are just naturally at odds to one another just because they just happen to be on opposite sides of that divide yeah but, but in terms of like the real like in terms of a real foil of like characteristics yeah uh, of, of uh personality traits and uh, uh character qualities like i feel like sela is definitely more the actual foil than amuro is mm. mm-hmm. you know um mm-hmm. up to this point i mean we're we're getting some backstory about amuro and we're we're seeing like just 
his actions over this uh, over the course of this. But I don't really. Maybe I'd have to think about it some more and really process and analyze how they are relative to one another between Amaro and Shar. But just based on what I've seen, it really Amaro doesn't really so far hasn't really provided me with much to to really compare against Shar, you know? Other than yeah, it's it's really it really just boils down to the fact that they're arch enemies. They're just opposing yeah, they're just on opposing sides. Yeah. 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 So um yeah, they don't really like I, I think if there weren't a war, there's a chance that they might not be friends, but there's definitely a chance that they just wouldn't care about it, each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like Char is the kind of guy where I think Amra would be beneath him in any other circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if, if you threw all these people into a high school together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Char <laughs> would be the cool kid that everybody yeah. wants to hang out with. And Amro is the nerd that has no friends and just goes home to play video games. Yeah. <laughs> and Char is the star of the basketball team, you know, cause he can yeah. dunk. Yeah. Well, I also I mean, wanted. To, oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was gonna say I, I have a feeling that his ambition and his cunning would still come out in a different way. It, it just wouldn't be used in in service of vengeance and war. You know. Mm, yeah. Like, but that's all. That's all I was gonna say. Yeah, I can see that. What were you gonna? I say? was gonna ask you uh, if you had any thoughts about Amro and his father and their relationship with each other. Because we had already seen in a previous volume Amaro's relationship with his mother, and that was a pretty powerful uh, story arc. But now yeah. that we're seeing a little bit about him and his dad, uh, I wondered if you had any thoughts on it, on their relationship. It's honestly, they feel a little. Uh, what's the word? Do you think his dad really cares about him? Because it just. Like it, it really seems like the presentation we're given is that his dad is just busy on his project working. Yeah, and Amro is left on his own. Exactly. I mean, it just feels like he's his father in name, and you know he has a duty to be his caretaker. But you there's know. also that scene where his dad is working late and gets home. And he's like, "Hey, why does it? Why don't you have a drink ready for me or whatever? You know, like why is <laughs> right. this place messed up? Why don't you clean up the house?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it just feels like he's. It yeah. It it doesn't feel like it's a relationship where they have any sort of affection for one another. It it almost feels like they're roommates or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that's the yeah. that's the best way and only way that I can really describe it. Like I I I don't really. I don't even really know that they care for each other as a father or as a son, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I wonder if there's going to be more as we progress in the series that fills in those gaps, but I have a feeling that that's kind of it. <laughs> well, you remember uh, in Volume 1 when we did see Amro's father briefly? Yeah. Do you remember what happened to him? Uh, not really. That what was, did happen to him? That, that was when it was right before Amro 
uh, enters the Gundam for the first time. Yeah, I so remember like, that part. Yeah, there's the battle, right? And then, yeah. and then uh, in the middle of the battle, uh, Amuro gets in in there, and then like there's some kind of like stray bullet or or something that blows a hole in the wall of the colony, and then oh. uh, Temre gets sucked out of it. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, there we go. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought. Well, I guess I was thinking that we might see more development in terms of like flashbacks or something, you know, but I guess they've just established Amaro as an independent young man who never really needed his father. And so when he did lose his father, it wasn't really that much of a loss to him. <laughs> that, that's why he didn't cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I I guess like I said, I'd have to read some more to see if they explore that anymore or 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 heck, maybe even if they don't explore that detail specifically, like if they just give us more of an insight into Amaro and just the inner workings of his minds, maybe I can glean something from that that would illuminate the relationship between him him and his father even more on some level mm -hmm. but i can't really say for sure yeah i understand did you think it was weird or uncomfortable at all to see uh the zombies characterized as people i'm thinking specifically of uh garma and degwin uh like that scene Especially uh, after uh, the parade, and Degwin has that scene with with Garma, you know, obviously doting on him and yeah, and showing that Garma is his favorite child, and and you know, it's 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 strangely very tender, you know, like a father yeah saying, you know, put your let me put my hand on your on your cheek, um, you know, and, and then like in his mind he's thinking, man, uh, it's not good for someone old to beget a child you know because it's like you know all the all the things that accompany those those thoughts yeah not being able to take care of him because you're too old or whatever yeah it, it's yeah is it did you find it strange that there was all this attention given to the zombies to like i guess flesh them out as real characters as opposed to just cartoon villains no i mean I it like I was saying earlier um if, if the purpose of this volume was to just integrate more nuance and complexity into the situation that's unfolding then it has to happen on a character level too. Well, I guess it doesn't have to happen, but like uh it makes sense that they would insert it on to these characters right so it's not just that there's mm -hmm. a complexity within the social structure that exists there's a complexity to these people that we've uh lionized as uh as these almost caricatures of what villains are right because yeah. again in war it's easy to look at this person or look at this monolith of whatever it is and be like oh this this person is xyz and that's all they're they're ever going to be and that's all i need to know in order to 
hate them and to justify my killing of them or whatever, right? Right. But I do think that, uh, you know, when writing this, again, the, the purpose of it does feel like he wanted to, that, uh, what's it called? That uh, Yasu, Yasuhiko wanted to make it clear that these were real people too, right? And they they have their own perspective on things. They have their own uh, complex dynamics within their family, clearly, between uh, the various children that Degwin has. Mm-hmm. And, and they have... They're capable of humanity, and maybe that's a thing that we shouldn't forget. Hmm. Do you think there's a fine line between portraying these three-dimensional... Is there a fine line between portraying these villains as three-dimensional characters and... Empathizing with them? Yeah, engendering sympathy with fascists? Oh, that is a good question. I think in situations like that, you have to look... I I personally look at what the ultimate goal of that is. And, and at some point, at some point, regardless of what their personal motivations are, uh, if, if their, if their overall agenda is, are are you referring to the creator? No, I meant the zombies. Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah. If the overall agenda of the zombies is one of conquest and of destruction and death and murder. Um, like regardless of whether they have a family or people that love them, uh, at the end of the day, there is, that's not something that can be overlooked. Right. Right. I do think in this case, it's complex because Degwin, again, they, they've built in this, layer of conflict into him where he doesn't actually want war i, I think it's pretty clear that it's yeah. uh girin mm-hmm. it? yeah it's girin mm-hmm. who who's really the one orchestrating the the uh the real atrocities behind the scene yeah and he's the one who's really power hungry so in a way it gives us as the reader this uh it gives us a path to look at this and go okay they're not all bad so there's <laughs> really? there's something that we can redeem in in their family there's there's there are characters that if we're to make peace with them there uh-huh. there are characters that we can uh work with there's the the potential and the hope that a peace can be restored and not at the not at the price of conquest you know mm-hmm. um, but i think you know you were talking about how uh yazuhiko's work is uh optimistic in that way well i do think this i guess this is one of those things that might be more optimistic than real life because uh 
you know, real life villainy or or atrocities or whatever. I I can't I can't look at that. I can't look at the the war criminals in real life and be like, well, but he was such a good father and he had a son that loved him. So <laughs> that makes it okay. Like I, it's not. It doesn't explain away any of that. Like in in real life, right? Because mm-hmm. um, at the end of the day, if if you killed a bunch of people because you know you wanted their land or because you uh hated them or whatever uh, that's not you know that's never a good enough excuse for for war or conquest so mm-hmm. i i'm inclined not to be in favor of warmongers i'll say that yeah. much <laughs> yeah yeah i mean when you were when you were saying uh when what you were saying about somebody being a good father and and that you know kind of being an excuse to overlook the atrocities that the person might have committed you, you just made for some reason you made me think of uh Mussolini's granddaughter because uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure she still has a high opinion of her grandfather yeah yeah uh, I think she won a seat in like the Italian parliament and she ran on a platform of what did the what did the fascists do that were so bad? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that's having a little too much love for your yeah. uh, grandfather. Yeah, at that point, uh, yeah, maybe maybe no. At that point, definitely being a good father didn't count. <laughs> didn't yeah. <matter. laughs> yeah. The other thing I was thinking about regarding Degwin is. Even though he says that he doesn't want war, it's not like he really does anything to stop Girin. Cause That's true. Degwin is still his father, and, and not only that, he's he's still the technically the leader of Zeon, right? So if he actually yeah. has any power, why didn't he just stop his son from doing all this? That's a good point. I, I think, well, there's that bit at the beginning where, or not at the beginning, in, in one of these chapters or sections where uh, Girin tells him, We've got such an overwhelming advantage. The war will end in a month. Minimal yeah. casualties. And that obviously wasn't true. Yeah. But I think it could be that case where... And I think this is consistent with uh, the book's outlook of just leader, uh, you know, the people in power. But at that point, what's done is done, and you've already committed yourself to war. And it's not like... It's not like you're capable of just... Well, no. Technically, you're capable of just ending it right then and there, right? But once once the wheels are turning and it becomes a cycle of, uh, you know, violence and retribution, it might not be so easy to just say, hey, guys, we're going to take our ball and go home. We're going to call it quits. Because <laughs> at that point, um, the flames of hate have already been fanned. And the Federation probably won't leave them alone at that point. So mm-hmm. maybe there's a way to look at it where they've done so much within that one month that they're committed to 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 conquest. The only way that this can end at this point is through conquest because 
if you end it, uh, there's no telling what the retribution is going to be. Um, yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah, so I, I, I think I do think your your point is the better point. If I had to be perfectly honest, because uh, at the end of the day, he is the the ruler of 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 the principality and yeah maybe in private he can have these moments where we're privy to watching him and seeing him say things like ah war is terrible well the war is the worst thing that we could do but you know it it doesn't eliminate what's happening on the ground the war yeah, is happening. He, he, he did so. nothing to stop his son from building this war machine. Exactly. He, he did nothing to stop his son from building an armada of warships uh, or his other son from developing mobile suits as new weapons of war. And, you know, just the manufacturing capabilities. It, it's like if they had built all of those weapons, like what else would, would they have been doing? Yeah. Yeah. Other than getting ready for war, like you don't, you probably don't need that many uh, warships for a defense force. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I guess this is where I'd have to ask you right back. I mean, it sounds like you uh, had thoughts of your own regarding the humanization of the Zabi family. Um, so I'm curious what 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 your what your feelings on that was as a as a choice for for Yazuhiko? I think it works for me as a story. It's it's definitely uncomfortable just to mm. think, just to for me to think, oh yeah, these are uh, even though these are characters that are fictional. Like I just if I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who lives in that world. You know, there there's a pretty good chance that uh, I would not I would not be down with the zombies. You know, like that's true. There's just yeah. so like to to imagine them being yeah. like a family, or to imagine Degwin being a loving father. Yeah, it, there's something incongruous about that, just because we know what he's leading his country into, and and even yeah. even though. Again, Garen is the one who's like pushing all the buttons and and driving it. I still think it's a pretty convenient Degwin... scapegoat. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Degwin's still responsible because he's he's the leader, so I I can't really give him a pass on that. I can't I can't be like yeah, you know, he's not that bad because he's a good father. Maybe you know he's not that bad because uh he loved Garen too much. To yeah. tell him to stop building all these weapons. Yeah. Like, come well, on, man. Well, here's here's an idea though. Or or here's let me float this idea. Uh-huh. Like what if what if we look at those two things and we don't draw that connection to one another? Like because we what we're what we're essentially doing right now is we're looking at this humanizing and we're making the connection between the humanizing and uh, of these characters and the and what that means for how we're supposed to view them uh relative to what their actions are uh as as they commit war crimes and stuff right mhm but uh 
whatever the point is, just that they're still war criminals, but at the end of the day, they're people too, right? Like yeah. it's not it's not necessarily this thing where you're supposed to sympathize with them or empathize with them, but you just have to realize that they they are people. They're not, you know, vampires or something uh, like that <laughs> exist as an abstract concept. Like, yeah. it's just an accurate representation of who these people are. Yeah, as no, opposed that, to that's a good point. Yeah, right. Because again, if you're building out these characters as to make them realistic, maybe the point isn't to. Maybe we're not supposed to sympathize with them, but we're supposed to recognize that they are people and we can have that sort of dissonance when examining them where we can go, yeah, they're people, but they're also monsters. Yeah. No, you you make a, a really good point there. And I, I think that's probably the way to read the text is to understand that these monsters are still people. They're not literally monsters like a vampire or anything but it it shows us that they have perspective of their own and they Mm -hmm. have uh uh to them they're human they're like there's clearly humanizing things about them to themselves Uh, yeah and if you observe that objectively you can look at that without you can look at that with an understanding that they are still war criminals at the same time, without looking at that and going, oh, I, I'm supposed to feel sorry for these guys, or I'm supposed to feel bad because Garma died and he yeah. lost his son. Like, I don't, I, I think as a work of fiction, there's an interpretation of that where you don't have to make those connections. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that. It is one of those situations where we can acknowledge that these, uh, it doesn't, yeah, like, none, nothing that they, none of the care that they showed to each other excuses their evil Absolutely. at the Absolutely. end of the day. Absolutely. Like, you, you can't, you can't wipe away all yeah. of the hundreds of millions of lives of people who died in the war because yeah. Degwin uh, was a loving father. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, that, that only goes so far. Yeah. So, it. Yeah, it's something that gives them, yeah, I guess I would say realistic characterization. You know, they're multifaceted yeah. characters. There's a there's a complexity to them, but it, there's also a simplicity too because the complexity comes into play because we see that they do care, or at least Degwin cares for, for Garma, and he, he yeah. cares to some extent probably for the rest of his children yeah but but primarily i would say garma is is what we see on the page we see that care we see the the hesitation in or at least he gives the lip service in hesitating to go to war but but ultimately he's still responsible for all the stuff that happens yeah yeah and and I, i think seeing all that gives us an interesting picture of a character who is not really redeemable in any way. Yeah, but, nor should he be. Yeah, nor should he be. 
but it it does show that there's uh that complexity to to the character because he he's he's not just uh, a caricature of a villain that you would see in i don't know like a kid's cartoon or something mm. yeah and i th- i think that's where the complexity comes in but the simplicity yeah. of the character comes into play because he's a fascist yeah. and like yeah. at the end of the day it, it's hard to overlook that right like i can't it, it doesn't really matter like how much he loves his son or how tender he is with garma at the end of the day he's a fascist who even if he didn't if even if he wasn't the one who put the poison into Dakin's drink and killed him to take his power, yeah, he definitely still embraced all of the fortune that came his way. Yeah, to he didn't take do anything seat. to smooth things over after that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's still there's still a simplicity to the character because you can just at a glance look at him and be like, yeah, that is not a good person. That is an evil person. Yeah, yeah. Right, I, yeah, I think too often we look at these uh I guess tropes and and the instinct is to go, "Oh, yeah, that humanizes him, but I can't feel bad for him, so therefore that characterization doesn't really provide me any value, but yeah i I do think it does you can objectively derive value from it without tying it to any sense of uh any sense of uh moral judgment of the character right yeah yeah so well i mean the moral judgment clearly comes from their actions but uh but you know just based on the analysis of the characterization there's something to be learned there uh separate of what they are as villains and monsters Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah yeah. So, all right. And, you know, it's just one of those things where even even if Degwin loved Garma, his son, it doesn't mean that either of them are good people or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe and, maybe Garma was just trying to please his father and impress his older siblings by following in their footsteps into the military, but he still responsible he for his own choice. choices yeah, yeah he, he's exactly. responsible for his own choices so he he chose to be uh yeah. you know a general in their fascist army <laughs> yeah and i'd even say that if you take a step back and really think about it this care and tenderness and love that he shows for his son like it doesn't translate to his concern or care for his people not really yeah yeah you know? exactly like so, okay. He loves his kids. Good for him. But what's he do? What's he really doing for his people other than like taking advantage of their anger and using it as a means to get power for himself? Mm-hmm. You know, very true. Get power for himself and his family. Like, you know, essentially saying, if you love me so much, go die for me so that I can, you know, get an <laughs> extra bag of gold doubloons or whatever. It's uh, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, pretty disgusting. Yeah, there we go. See, I found a way to make you hate him again. Thanks, man. <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> uh.
All right. Right. Well, so I guess that's all we have to say about Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin Volume 6, unless you have any final thoughts, Albert. Nope. I'm just going to put it out there that if you have, uh, you know, anything you'd like to contribute to the conversation, feel free to email us at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or go ahead and hit us up on our Instagram at between the gutters on Instagram. And, uh, if not that, uh, you know, you can tweet at us too, or, uh, do we have a Facebook page? I don't even know about it. I'm pretty sure have, we have a Facebook. I never know? set up a Facebook page. Yeah. Well, well, okay. Uh, Facebook is for, uh, you know, uh, old people. Dotards. Yeah, there we go. So we, we were fine without it, but, Wait, oh, are yeah. we dotards? Are we old enough to be dotards? I am not a dotard, but I believe I am a retard. Hello? Okay, okay. That, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't expecting you to say that. Sometimes you alley-oop it to me and I completely fumble it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a part of my retardation. <laughs> I'm going to get us so canceled. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm not sure that's the kind of joke that we should be uh, recording and putting out there. Man, fire retardant. <laughs> I'm fire retardant. Uh anyways, what was I gonna <laughs> what was I gonna say? Uh You're talking about Facebook. Yeah, so um yeah, feel free to uh rate us on whatever platform you happen to listen to us to, whether it be Spotify or um iTunes or whatever. It really helps us a lot. We really appreciate it. Like, subscribe, whatever. Tell all your friends. Yeah, please. All right. Next week, I believe we are going to be looking at a couple of Ms. Marvel comics just because the Ms. Marvel Disney Plus show has begun recently. I haven't watched any of the episodes yet, so I'm lagging behind. I'm sure we'll do an autopsy of it at some point after we get a chance to watch the whole thing. But uh, before we do that, figured it'd be a good idea to look at a couple of Ms. Marvel comics. We're going to look at the first story arc from her uh, original appearance by G. Willow Wilson and Adrian Alfona. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we'll look at the first volume in the Solid and Ahmed run as well. Yeah. These are, yeah, she's a new character. So these are probably the most relevant comics for her. Mm -hmm. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is Between the Gutters signing off. Peace out. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.